presents the Screen Guild Players. The Screen Guild play tonight, The Maltese Falcon. The starring players, this is Humphrey Bogart. This is Mary Astor. This is Sidney Greenstreet. And this is Peter Laurie. Lady Esther presents the Screen Guild players in Warner Brothers' sensational mystery story, The Maltese Falcon. It stars Humphrey Bogart as private detective Sam Spade, Mary Astor as Miss Wonderly, Sidney Greenstreet as Casper Gutman, and Peter Laurie as Joel Cairo. <laughs> I've been working on my impressions all week, all month for this. Yeah. The, um, you know, we're really, we had to refine because in our bag of tricks and our back catalog, we have, uh, you know, Peter Laurie, but man, trying to work down a mean Sydney Green is tough. <laughs> You're the Falcon. I see. I can't even do it. Can I, you? when I listen, I can do it, but I can't, you know, um, <laughs> For me, I have to hear somebody do a Sydney Greenstreet impression before I can do the impression myself. Yeah, maybe we get into it. I, I, I'm rolling. I can, I can work myself into it, you know. But basically, we can probably do this as, a, as an entire radio play. This could be Saturday Night Movies. Possess- we did Die Hard at Christmas time. <laughs> Saturday Night Movies, Sleepovers Theater. And then it's us doing every year. You know, you're bogey and, and uh, three other people, and I'm the other two. The book so I... That'll be fun. Uh, the book I read about the movie, I think, has the, like, shooting script in it. Attached? Like, just oh, in, nice. in the middle of it. So we can... Yeah. We actually through, have, we we actually have the lines that we can we can do. Yeah. And, it's, I mean, it's verbatim almost from the book, too. So we'll, we'll take the Hammett book and we'll do it complete. You know, we don't have any haze codes bothering us about putting any... You know, inferences to homosexuality or whatever else in it. We'll do it, baby. <laughs> we ain't scared. Screw you, Hayes. Screw you, Hayes, and your codes. <laughs> you take that code. But, uh, yeah, God bless you for, for what you're trying to do, though, uh, Father. Say a prayer for me, Father, but screw you and your codes. So um, welcome to uh, Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers. Summer's almost gone, right? It's the end of September. I, I guess is, summer's really. gone. Yeah. Yeah, it's, got, it's gotten cold on the East Coast, which is great. I love the cold, coldness, but I'm already starting to wear my long johns, which is exciting. It's the weather for me. When I get to wear leotards. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I have to start leaving the apartment just so I can go outside and enjoy the uh, autumn foliage yeah. of Blake Manhattan, hasn't been of out Midtown of the Manhattan. <laughs> <laughs> those, those four trees, that, those really thin, thin, thin trees <coughs> that are up, that are up uh, you know, going up uh, Broadway or uh, 
Eighth Avenue. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Blake's been in his apartment since February. Right, basically, Blake, the, the, for the most part. The pandemic didn't start till January. You're like, ah, I just got an early start. <laughs> Jesus, his hair is down to his waist. Certainly, looks like since, Greg Ullman. Certainly since March, I, I really haven't been out yeah. of the apartment except for to go to the grocery store since March. Yeah, Blake's got like a Ron Silver, Al Pacino, Andy Garcia, like 1990 thing going. You know. Yeah. Uh, Carlito Bergant. We could do our Carlito cosplay. We're getting that going. <laughs> I have to shape it you know, a little bit for Carlito. It's a little wild at the moment. Yeah. Uh, with with always with this, I did extensive over amount of prep. Uh, you know, I took days off of work. I, I did too much than I should have. And uh, I was thinking about uh, gangster movies and Angels with Dirty Faces. And then it came to me like, I think Angels and Dirty Faces. Carlito's Way is just a remake of Angels and Dirty with Dirty Faces. I could be wrong there, but I was thinking that the other night, and I was like, oh, that's freaking awesome. So maybe we can adapt. Well, I guess that wouldn't work if we did a radio play. I guess it's Carlito's Way, but then they wouldn't be able to see you. Never mind. It's all, this is all very fluid. We can post pictures. We can do a live stream. Zoom well, my it. hair is certainly long enough, so I can do the, the Sean Penn. I can permit, you know, and do that with my hair, you know. Sean Penn's frizziness. So, but welcome to Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers. This is the uh, the big one. Yeah, it's our sixth anniversary. Yeah, this is 2012. So six years we've been doing this bad boy. 2012 all started. 2014 all started back. Yeah, Did we started in 2014. Oh, what did I say? 2012. Yeah. So 20. This is 2020. I'm sorry. Oh. We're in 2020. So 2020. Oh. Say. And yeah, it's been <laughs> what's going on? 2012. What year is it? Yeah, what the hell? <laughs> what, the hell? The, what year? The date? 12th May Thursday. What year? <laughs> huh? Uh, 2020. This is 2020. So um, say it's too just too late in the morning. We need to start doing these in the morning. Uh, and so six years, and we've done. Um, we always regale everyone with the long amount of stuff we've done. But we early on, I don't. When did it become a conscious thing? For in the uh, oh, I'm Dion Baia. I'm Jay Blake. And uh, when do you think it became a conscious thing for us to start uh, curtailing the anniversaries to a theme? I think in the first one. I think that yeah. kind of started right away because we did. I mean, it kind of it did morph. It evolved because we our first episode was the Punisher with Dolph Lundgren. That was the first episode yeah. we ever did of the show. So then Pilot. we thought for our anniversary, our first anniversary, we figured, what's a bigger movie than Batman 89? And then it uh, it also happened to be a comic book movie. So we're like, oh, well, that's kind of cool. But that day kind of, you know, it's, a, it's another comic book movie. Yeah, like Punisher was. And then I think we did like Rocketeer. Yeah. So they're like, okay. The second year. And then. That's also, yeah. So that's comic books, but it's getting a little more pulpy. And then it just kind of morphed into comic books, into pulp heroes. Indiana Jones, we did then. We yeah. did Raiders. Did Shadow. We did the Shadow. Uh, then we did Superman 2, which was, instead of going pulpy, we went more, we took the comic book We went back. It was still, I mean. We went back comic book you know, yeah. I know. Yeah, uh, but it's still the same era. You know, it's still, it's just the other side of the bubble. I know Jose's been wanting us to do uh, the Phantom. Every, well, that would round it out. <laughs> you know? We keep pushing off that one, though. 
you know. And we've separately done Who Framed Roger Rabbit. We've done Dick Tracy. Uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit being an example, like the Rocketeer of a of a throwback to that. Yeah. Uh, we did Dick Tracy, and I feel like we did one or two we other did ones Tarzan. That, that were we did Greystoke, Tarzan. We did, which is right up there. Which um, was these weren't and, these weren't anniversary episodes. We were just no, we're just doing that are supplementals to the anniversary, but it goes into that theme. Uh, you brought up Carlos. So I, I, I guess um, I forgot well, before we get here, I brought Blake over. It's also, we've had a birthday this month. So um, I brought Blake over a, a surprise, this long and slender phallic <laughs> item. And Blake's like, what's how this? Did you, how did it's you just know? A poster. <laughs> exactly. Oh my gosh. It's just a poster tube. So I got Blake. This, this is, um, this is, I don't know how to present the story behind this. So uh, let's see. We have uh, a good friend of the podcast, uh, Jason Fortin, who's uh, from Massachusetts. Uh, he's the, the one that Blake and I, you and I, were going to get the uh, beer with uh, maybe last year, but then stuff fell through where he wasn't able to come down for the weekend to visit New York City. Yeah. Uh, so I be, you know, we become friends and we talk quite a bit on Facebook, and he put, put up a picture. And so this is where I'm going with this. So it was Blake's birthday coming up. And I was like, you know what? That would be a great, great birthday present for Blake. So uh, I brought this over, got got myself one, and got Blake one. And I hope I'm not saying too much before I give it away to you. So why don't you try to uh, take your knife? Don't cut yourself. You're you're because you're in the MacGyver club now. See if I can do get your this. MacGyver. Now. Yeah, be careful. Be careful. That's sharp. Be careful. All right. There you go. Okay, he's I got have... it open. He, he's opened the sarcophagus. <laughs> I have I have removed the lid. Now go slow, baby. Go slow. Oh, smell smelling the Massachusetts I like the, air. I like to smell the air. Yeah, you could smell lobsters and and, and other things in the Red Sox. <laughs> in the wanna, Bruins. I don't want to yeah, harm it. As you can see, it's a it's a it's a it's a image. It's a poster. It's a poster of some sort. I mean, it is a poster yeah. tube. Yeah, it's tick, duh. <laughs> <laughs> I told I you. It was long and phallic. I am taking it almost removing it. <laughs> Slowly. Slow <laughs> That's a sound effect if I've ever heard one. <laughs> it's out of the tube. Well, you're supposed to have your mask and gloves on. <laughs> okay. So I saw this on Sorry. Facebook. You tell me when I should unravel it, so go, go, go right now, because I don't want to ruin it for you, so I gotta explain. Ooh, look at that. This was this would have been a nice uh accompaniment to our Halloween episodes last, last year. year. Yeah. So what we got here is we have um uh Jason's friend who is the stage manager and t-shirt designer for uh, Insane Clown Posse, huh. who also is a designer and does tattoos and is a tattoo artist uh and does all of our friend Jason's tattoos. Uh Shane Murphy, he designed that and he put it up and he did a limited amount of them and it's and what we have here it's a poster for John Carpenter's The Thing, but it's done in a retro EC Comics style as if it's a cover of an EC Comics comic book like a Twisted Tales, The Vault of Horror. Hence why Blake said last year for Halloween in twenty nineteen we did uh four I was gonna say four months, four weeks of um uh, <laughs> anthology movies. Four months of nothing four but months. anthology horror movies. <laughs> Or just anthology movies. By the end, we're doing like shortcuts, or we're doing you know whatever the hell, all kind of stuff. But yeah, so we did we did all we did all the anthology Tales from the Crypt, Vault of Horror, uh, Creep Show. Did a whole bunch of them back then, and 
anyway, we were, we, we talked all about the history of EC comics and all that. So here, uh, Jason had got that from his friend Shane in like April or March, posted it. And I said, Oh my gosh, you know, those available. And Jason hooked me up. So Jason, thank you very much. His friend, shout out to his friend Shane who designed it and did that. And I think it's, it's blacklight as well too, right? Oh, I don't know. I don't have to break out the blacklight. It, it, it might have uh, the colors of it, uh, Kind of look to me. I might be wrong. I thought it looked like it might have a black because of the, how it kind of looks. But um, so it's really cool. It's got Kurt Russell. It's got McCready on the cover with the flamethrower, and it's awesome. And it's little bubbles down to the side of the different characters. So I was thinking that would look awesome in Jay Blake's collection. So I got it, and then I've problem is I've held on to it since April. <laughs> so I've had it in the tube at my house, and Jason's like, you know, three months go by, just like, hey, what's going on? Did you did you give it to Blake yet? I was like, no, 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 it's I'm waiting for his birthday. And then you know, with COVID, I was like, Jesus, if I can't get it to him, I'm gonna I'm gonna send somebody. So well, thank happy you. birthday. There you thank go. you, Deanna. Yeah. Thank you, Jason. For yeah, we have that, that possible. That's we have awesome. that uh, tradition on this podcast of giving each other gifts embarrassing each other uh live where we give stuff yes. last year in a very uh, i'm gonna give you the escape <laughs> a very escape visual way game. for our for our listening <laughs> yeah, <exactly. audience. laughs> it's like the idea of you know those those the cliched halloween party with a kid where like close your eyes what do you feel grapes like eyeballs what do you feel spaghetti Ooh, snakes or witch's hair so that's here we're like we're just you know it, it feel and this is what it looks like people so, yeah, in the past, Blake's got me a lot of stuff one year. He was going through his parents' basement, and they were telling him to throw stuff out, so Blake was just bringing <laughs> me stuff. Yeah, yeah, take this. You'll like yeah. this. Yeah, and then, then, you know, I was looking for stuff too hard to get for Blake on the Internet. So so there we go. So happy birthday. I thought Thank you'd you. Like, more than anybody. I, I mean, it. And, it's, and I don't even think that's available to the public, so it's a really unique image, and I think it's so cool and neat. And, you know, you of anybody I thought would appreciate yeah, the yeah. easy It's comics. awesome. It's going yeah, right, and I have a... I don't really have any right wall space, but I'm, I do. <laughs> exactly. I have a giant binder with all my collectible <laughs> posters that I'm going to put it in. Yeah, because uh, Blake is a connoisseur. He collects art. Uh, that's that's Blake's 401ks. He collects uh, fine comic book art and uh, and illust- uh, art illustrations of like cartoonists and uh, animators and uh, you know artists. You know, it's going to go uh, right. He doesn't have like any. It's going to go right in the binder. It's going to go right in the binder next to my in the mouth of madness poster which is signed by john carpenter and sandy king so it's gonna it's gonna have a nice home <laughs> that's really good that's bef- and that's before like the goblin argento stuff you have the fabio frizzly and you know, all this stuff you know so awesome so that's thank you jason yes and thank you uh shane murphy for 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 putting that together because it's freaking awesome yeah it's great um, thank you so much so I'm so yeah. That was so. That's our anniversary, and and I don't All know. Right. I guess because <laughs> goodbye, yeah, so, everybody. That was it. That was a. We're just doing a uh, an RSS drop for Shane. Go check out his uh, tattoo work, his stage design, and T-shirt design for the Insane Clown Posse. Um, no, because last year was was Blake's birthday as well, and I got him something. So I said, you know what? Why not? Since we're down to twelve this year, why don't we give uh, keep it for him for the anniversary? Only like three episodes away, which is six months for us. Um, <laughs> Yeah. So here we are. We're back here. We're talking. So um, we decided for so this then morphed into the snake. We rode the snake, you know, seven miles, ride the snake, you know, to the lake. And we each each year we we did a different level. We did, you know, Indiana Jones. Uh, We did Star Wars as a surprise. Uh, The the uh, Christmas, the original 1977 one. Well, we did a new hope, I mean. Yeah, but we did that around Christmas, didn't we? 
Oh, you're right. Okay, I thought it was around September. That I'm thinking that we also did the the holiday special Star Wars. But yeah, we so we but that ended us into Pulp World, and that as a surprise bonus episode ended up being one of the longest podcasts ever, let alone of our catalog. <laughs> you know, and I saw the other day I was like cleaning my desk out, and Blake and I decided, you know, I don't know if you did, but we were like, remember we we're like we should keep the notes because we may do a part two because we didn't get to so many stuff after three and a half hours. Um, so I was thinking now, like, ah, I don't need these notes now. <laughs> but, uh, you know, we'll see. But So my point is we've done a lot of episodes now that kind of go into this theme. Um, we've done ones, of course, for the anniversary and other ones uh, over the years that adhere to a theme of um, what we're going to be kind of doing tonight. And when we were trying to come up with something for tonight, we, were, we had a list of stuff that was uh, adhere to our, our, our usual theme of the year as well as what we usually do for the anniversary and we whittled it down to a couple and then Blake threw this one out and I was like, you know, that's a pretty good idea. It's, it's the last thing I would have thought of, but the more you think about it, the more like, well, you know what? It does kind of fit the narrative. It fits the, uh, the theme that we do every year. Yeah. I also, and also because a lot out of all of the movies that we were kind of discussing as possibilities, I felt like you and I have a strong, have the strongest, like (laughs) the strongest, like, connection together to this movie than the other movies for us for a multitude of reasons for personal i mean for personal reasons yeah for for reasons that we're in psychotherapy now for um yeah we do and so we've, we've um, watched this and it movie was, together many times <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah i mean it, it's this yeah and we have a whole running gag this developed our radio or this has developed our our um blake and i in our in our uh, summer years when we were doing summer stock, we needed to have jobs. So Blake and I decided we would put a um, comedy team together, and we went around and did. My mom used to be a nurse uh, at convalescent <laughs> homes, yeah. So Blake and I would do the convalescent home circuit, and my mom let us go in a couple times and entertain the people. And we would yes. do. This is where we branched off for. We, and, we, uh, we, this is where we cut our teeth in, in learning the Peter Laurie. Uh, impersonations and, and James Mason yes. impersonations. Unfortunately, and, and, some of that act is probably not appropriate for uh, today's audience. For a, a, a tw- well, there's it's a, a little lot icy. Of, it's a little blue. A, yeah, there's a, yeah, it's a little blue. It's a little Don Ricklesy. Um, Don Rickles meets like an Alan King. And uh, you're right. This is it's this is not probably the environment now where we can probably do that act um, without was, having people sign a waiver that they won't be offended or yeah, it was of its um, time. <laughs> Yeah, uh, and it's fantastic, and maybe we'll bring it out of retirement in the future. But you know, because of that, we can't really get into the actual details of the notorious uh, skit. But um, we can say it morphed. Uh, well, let's just go in. There's so many things to try to figure out here, and I, I don't know. I, I don't want to sound like uh, I'm looking at this at a different way as you are. But if I, I, when you. When I do all my thinking in the shower, I was, you know, washing myself and I and I started thinking about this episode and I said, you know what, this hits us on so many different levels of what we've already talked about as well as what you just said is as us, the connection we have and our affinity and love for cinema and this movie. So there's so many angles we can attack this at. But as you just said, I think that's a good way to just go. We can just kick in the door and plow through and start going and see where we land and go any which way. So, Blake, this goes back to probably uh, our sophomore year in university together where uh, it was the winter break 
and uh, I was going to borrow the family minivan, and I said, you know, I'm going to go visit Blake um, up in Albany for, for for a week or two, and then, oh, no, not a week or two, maybe it was like four or five days uh, during the winter break, and then also then Blake will hop a ride in with me, and I'll, we'll drive back, and we'll go back to college when the when the thing ended. So I got in the car, drove up to Taconic, um, you know, going up there, kind of like the beginning of The Irishman, if people have seen The Irishman. I get up there, it's cold winter, nice, uh, and then we got snowed in up there, didn't we? Yeah. <laughs> so the fir- like yeah, it was like the shining. We had a lot of snow. Yeah. So I was like Scatman coming up in the snowcat, and Blake's like, "There's a storm coming in. We should head over to um to what's the name of the town? Not Glen Falls. That was uh, you saying where the video store was? Yeah, Cahos. Yeah. Yeah, we went over there because we're like, let's stock up with stuff because, you know, the snow is going to be coming in and we might have a couple days that we're going to be, you know, uh, in boarding with, with Blake's gracious family. So we went there, we went to Substitute and we got ourselves some nice subs. Yeah. We stocked up there. I remember Raymond's Eric was going to be someplace the next day and we were thinking about, we heard it on the radio there and you're like, you want to go? I was like, ah, I don't know if we want to go someplace. It was like in Albany yeah, yeah. or something. If that. And then we went so, to. For everybody, substitute was, a, substitute was a sandwich place next to the video, next to Captain Video. <laughs> yeah. And Captain Video, sadly, was in decline. We're, we're in the era of like, you know, urban renewal for Captain Video. So it's starting to see the, the inner city decline. Remember, it was selling a lot of stuff. So I went in. And I bought like a half a dozen VHS tapes. I bought the Fat Albert. Remember, they had an episode of Fat Albert there, and I bought a bunch of stuff. And we're going through the rack. We, we rented the uh, Ice-T movie. What's the name of that movie with the guy that looks like a poor man's Charlie Bronson, and they're in the prison? They all get locked in the prison together? Yeah. It has Christopher you know Lambert in it. Yes. Men, men yes. with we, guns? We, Was that... Mean guns. Mean guns. Mean guns. Mean guns. Yeah. We rented that 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 weekend. We rented. We went to the whole slew of movies. But also, uh, when we got back to Blake's, we started. We were making. This was the era of mixtapes because we had. You know, we had the car and cassettes. And I don't know if people realize now the 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 profound like high the movie High Fidelity. You talk about a mixtape. Blake and I were making ourselves an awesome movie style mixtape that we would listen to on the way back on the two and a half hour drive from Albany to to Westchester County, New York City. So we made ourselves an awesome mixtape, and and we were putting movie uh, samples before the songs. So we were picking all these different movies we loved, and we did a whole array of songs. And I still have that tape somewhere. I should, you know, do it to CD. I Sometimes it's the only tape I have in my tape player in my living room so that when I'm cleaning, I'll sometimes put it on. You know, and and it just but then suddenly it gets a little weird because we had like you know what kind of beer do you like, man? Heineken, Heineken, fuck that shit, Bass Blue Ribbon. <laughs> so that's a little loud to have like yelling before you have like um you know uh, typo negative starter or yeah. vanilla fudge. But we had a whole eclectic mix of music, and we did uh, we put a segment of this uh, of the movie we're doing tonight, and then that because of that we this we started making jokes about that uh, that scene. And then that developed our Peter Lorre routine. And then that was like us being two little girls. We stood up like two nights in Blake's bedroom where I'm sleeping on the on the floor in my sleeping bag. Blake's in his bed and we're just riffing on, improv on this joke. <laughs> Doing Peter Lorre uh, uh, impression. Yeah, and our and our routine, and we we were up all night. You know, it's kind of the example where you know, luckily your mom and yeah, your your <laughs> mom and Rob were not like, when's it gonna end? So we. We we this routine grew out, which became of legend, and then over the years, this routine has gotten bigger, where it involved everybody else, and it's become our um, 
our aristocrats routine. <laughs> you know? <laughs> or it's so long and convoluted, and every time you tell it, it's different. Yes. But roundabout way is uh, it all comes from this movie tonight that we're doing. Yes. And uh, when that and when we were watching the movie tonight, when that part came up, I was like, "Oh, that was on our tape," because <laughs> I know it back to forward, and it's so funny because that's before I knew who Barton McLean was, or really, or I didn't realize that's Ward Bond. So there's all these other elements into that. That's great. So I know that th- th- that little segment so well. I know where it stops and ends. It's so funny. I know I know it like you know word for word, and because I've listened to it in the car so many times back when I had the tape. So tonight. We're doing um, uh, an oldie. Uh, we're going pretty down, back down the alley. Not as far back as we've gone, where we pretty did close, another Peter Lorre movie. Pretty close. Yeah. And Peter Lorre. Same era, really. <laughs> and Peter Lorre. And, uh, uh, you know, we did last year, I think we did. We did 1939. We did uh, Wizard of Oz. We did the sequel. We did Return to Oz, Wizard of Oz. And before that was 36 or so was Mad Love. Years ago, we did with Peter Laurie for one of the Halloween episodes, a fabulous Peter Laurie episode where we talk about Laurie and stuff. Uh, but this is 1941, and we're doing The Maltese Falcon, uh, directed by the J- great John Huston, starring Humphrey Bogart, uh, Peter Laurie, uh, Sidney Greenstreet, uh, Elijah Cook Jr., the Ward Bond, Barton McLean, and uh, what's her name? Mary um, Astor. Mary Astor. I'm thinking, yeah, I was thinking Astor, Asder the dog. <coughs> Introducing um, Sidney Greenstreet. <clears throat> at, at, at the, the, the green old age of 61 years old, he was already a, uh, uh, a seasoned theatrical stage performer being on the stage for 40 years. And uh, this is the first movie he's in. And uh, he ended up having a great career until he passed away some 20 years later. We can get into a little while. But this movie is so weird because you think about it. It's like it's like Casablanca. You and I talked about doing Casablanca on here, and Casablanca is another great movie like this. And Casablanca, I absolutely love, but I feel like I this movie for me is a little more formidable, even to my upcoming book, which comes out and maybe now because of COVID in like six months or so, the beginning of 2020. And it's just it's this when I got out of college, I plowed into the kind of uh, private detective um, novel. Uh, genre, and uh, I ended up really diving into Dashiell Hammett, Raymond Chandler, all these guys, and it's and the reason why I say because of the the um, uh, the anniversary movie, this is stuff we've talked about uh, or we've hit on certainly in so many casts prior to this. So it's again something for for we're developing in Blake's closet here. We have yarns on the wall of what we're doing. So the dueling yarns of of we're you know mapping everything. It's like a gene splicing, you know. And uh, this is another one where we've uh, there's so many people, so many elements, so many things we've brought up in other podcasts, you know. So when we do the Melchies Falcon, it's so funny to just think of how. I don't know, just impactful this is, right? I mean, on every level, like every scene, every line of dialogue in the movie, certainly, has become a cliche, right? I mean, everything is so iconic, so, uh, you know, the the, 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 the arc, it becomes archetypal characters, the setups. Yeah. I mean, it's... It's parodied so much, you don't even realize it now. It's almost uh, intimidating to try to do an episode on it, because... It's it's such a, like as you're saying it just it kind of is the prototype 
for so many different things that we've discussed in length, at length, yeah. uh, on the show, but just in cinema. Um, so it's kind of almost daunting to try to figure out what's the best way to tackle it because there's so many different avenues to go down. Uh, and that becomes the fear because Blake's like, Dion, you can't, don't do too much research. <laughs> and then I come in with like a, like a, 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 a hand truck and I'm putting stuff up books and all that. But it's like this hits on so many different, you know, me having my affinity for, for the, the private detective novel and my book that's coming out. The, the movies we like, the connection we just said we have with us with the movie, the connection of the theme of the anniversary episode on the podcast and the stuff we hit on, our love for cinema and the people in it, uh, how this affected uh, cinema, cinema culturally, literature. It's like there's so many. Yeah. And then, it, again, too, the other thing is, you know, we're not smart people. Well, certainly <laughs> I'm not. So there's certainly far more... There's certainly far more educated and learned men who've who've covered this stuff who use all that really nice, sophisticated, you know, talk that you know those big uh, hundred dollar yeah. words that you know we don't know, you know, that have done you know great, 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 um, you know, uh, discussions and talks on sure. this that we probably well, won't get to. Yeah, that's but the, we have our unique. Yeah, I mean that's one of the things. That's why, for me, you know, uh, one of the reasons why I don't usually want to cover these kinds of movies is because, you know, part of the concept when we came up with the show, one of my ideas, thoughts about the show was that, you know, there are so many great films that get talked about the way Dion's talking about, you know, the like that, you know, film scholars talk about it and there's books written about them and they're so influential, you know, but like, why don't we do one that highlights the movies that don't get talked about that way? And we'll talk about like Rainbow Williams. And we'll talk about those movies. Rainbow Williams is another perfect example of like. Oh, yeah, you're right. Yeah. The, uh, yeah. Of the Destroyer, of, the Executioner. Yeah, yeah. Those were kind of pulpy novels that uh, became, you know, a movie. But uh, so it's just, you know, usually it's like, well, let's talk about the kinds of movies that don't get talked about that way. And lo and behold, there's a million podcasts that do that. But uh, at the time we did. It's like us saying, like, let's do Gone with the Wind. I mean, minus it being canceled. I meant like, you know, like how epic. It's like we got to read a book. It's like, it's like, let's yeah. pick the biggest movie in Hollywood history. <laughs> and let's do a podcast episode about it. Sure. But also it's like as the years have gone by, we've now, this is, the, we're going, this is our sixth anniversary. We've done, you know, almost 200 episodes of the show. Um. You know, we came up with an anniversary and, like I said, for, for many reasons, we decided to go with this. And, and I don't even know if we even pointed out that the reason why this fits into our category of of, of anniversary episodes is that it started off as a pulp, pulp short stories and then a pulp novel, got then put into a pulp novel. So it kind of fits into our pulp hero, comic booky pulp uh, extravaganza that we do for our for our episodes. I'm not exactly even sure where I'm going with all this other than to say that, yeah, we're stepping a little bit outside of our typical comfort zone, but not really at the same time. <laughs> it's like last year us doing wizard of Oz. I mean, that's a big movie, you know? Yeah. So it's, this is another example of a big movie. I mean, this movie, the Dashiell Hammett, the author of this, you know, has been called 
the most influential writer of the 20th century. That's probably debatable if it is or isn't. Uh, I absolutely love him, and I love that genre. And we've talked about this genre at length, especially we've talked about it in these kind of episode podcasts we do when we bring up about that era of um, the hard... We haven't really talked so much about the hard-boiled detective, but we've talked about the pulp hero and the comic book pulps, and we've brought up either going from Sherlock Holmes or, or, or somebody to the other side, to a Batman or to a Superman. We've talked all about this stuff. So to bring Dashiell Hammett, Hammett, up, up, Hammett up specifically and to talk about him and to show that you know he almost started the whole existential movement in cinema like a couple of years earlier by what he even talks about in, in the Maltese Falcon, his, his short stories that turned into the 1930 novel that was published. Uh, and you can even make an argument that he kind of was the proto uh, author who invented the antihero. I mean, you look at this stuff, uh, uh, you know, the continental op who I've brought up before, I think on the who frame Roger Rabbit episode um, that he uh, envisioned, who was an early, uh, character of his before and then he made sam spade for the Maltese falcon these characters go on to be copied in so many forms like a sherlock holmes they call him pastiches he has so many pastiches as it goes on um one of dashiell hammett's book red harvest which is about the continental op ends up being translated into to uh, mafune into um yojimbo uh, koasawa which then comes back and is transferred back into uh Sergio Leone's Fistful of Dollars, then it gets transferred back, I think, into something else, and then into Last Man Standing with Bruce Willis. We end up seeing these stories, and uh, the characters he writes uh, as he goes on, and these these people, the Nick and Nora from The Thin Man, which he also wrote, The Continental Op, or Sam Spade here, they become these archetypes that, you know, really end up influencing the 40s, the 50s, into the 60s. I. Yeah, it's interesting that you brought that up because as we were watching it, that's definitely something that came to mind for me is that, you know, in some ways, like Sam Spade is the prototype for Eastwood's character in A Fistful of Dollars. Like, and and then it was like, and then it was like, oh, well, that's based in my head, you know, all this is happening, (laughs) but that's based on a fucking. Red Harvest, yeah, yeah, on Red Harvest. So like, you and then you watch that he's, you know, he's a guy who's kind of playing all the sides. I mean, it's he's, you know, it totally that's a was theme like, of yeah. That that's a that we can get into that. That's a Hammond, uh, a, 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 a Hammett theme of playing both sides. And you see Eastwood doing a really good. It seems to me he's very influenced by Tashiro Mifune's performance and Yojimbo and Sanjiro. Uh, uh, which also then again is the same thing. Like, that's the Continental Op, that character, or the um, or the Sam Spade character. So there's these themes that are just amazing that just, you know, like we see or we talk about. Uh, and then, you know, Eastwood in his own has become this iconic character, his cowboy and his anti-hero, uh, which in the 70s becomes the vigilante. So it's it's crazy. They, I mean, I, it's for me, it's just so much more like learning as we, we've done this podcast of reading and all this stuff and seeing how all this is connected. And we say that all the time. Everything is connected. And here it's, it's, a, it's a fine example of, of really seeing us being in the lifeboat in the middle of the ocean and how many fragments we can pull in and how many connections sure. we can make here. Yeah, I mean, it's know? an interesting genre or subgenre in that you know, I, I'm sure I don't even know if we brought it up. I feel like it's something we must have talked about, but I don't know in what episode we would have. 
like this idea of the detective story kind of starts with some of the stories of Edgar Allan Poe and then uh, Dickens, uh, but it's not really it doesn't really become its own genre until Arthur Conan Doyle creates Sherlock Holmes, uh, yeah, in like the eighteen eighties, and then it becomes like the detective story becomes its own thing and becomes a literary genre and. You know, as early as 1900 or 1903, there was a Sherlock Holmes uh, film. Uh, yeah. Uh, but it doesn't, as a cinematic genre, it doesn't really take off until sound, which is, you know, really, you don't think about these kinds of things in the typically as like uh, contemporary film goers. But even by 1941, when this movie was made, it's still a pretty new medium to, you know, and a new art form. Uh, and <clears throat> parts, there's a lot of reasons why it doesn't really take off until uh, the introduction of sound into cinema. It's part of it's like the cinematic detectives or that we know more. So they don't get invented until like the twenties, like Perot or Spade or Charlie Chan. Uh, so there's not really those kinds of characters, but, uh, before before that to have in cinema. But one of the things in researching that I thought was really interesting was that one of the reasons why Hammett was so influential is because his quote-unquote hard-boiled detective stories were like in a way a direct response to like what detective stories were beforehand, which were like a very British very different feel. Yeah. And then Hammett and then some other American writers around the same time, they start writing like these very gritty, you know, they take it out of like, you know, the British parliament and they put the, put the murder right in the alleys of, <laughs> yeah. of a city. So it's just a very interesting um, thing to look at the evolution and why all these things come up. You talk about, you brought up Sherlock Holmes being, uh, the, and I don't recall since we're doing this cold, the actor's name who played him in the silent movies, but he was very famous on the stage and he invented some facets of the Sherlock Holmes character that he, he put on, maybe the hat, I forget what it is, but he did something that we now think of Sherlock Holmes and it was because of the that first actor. Sidney Greenstreet's first stage role was in a Sherlock Holmes stage play in like 1902 or 1903. Um, you're right, I mean... Poe invents the detective before I think the name to de a detective has is even coined, and it's du du Duplin. I think is the uh, from uh, uh, Murders of the Rue Morgue, and he's in two other stories: the 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 purple Poloin. He's in two more stories, short stories that, and then uh, there's a couple other people at the time who come up with stuff. Uh, uh, what's his? Nick Carter's even invented a little bit around this time, and that guy. There's a guy called Bulldog Durham, I think, who's also invented at this time. But like you said, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle grabs the, the character, maybe like Sherlock Holmes, and that becomes so popular around the turn of the century that it becomes a British in institution. And, and then, you know, Agatha Christie comes and does Miss Marple, Harky Perot, all these people. And it becomes this really uh, English uh, uh, genre for, for, for 20 years or so until the early 20s where... Uh, our authors here kind of take it back um, and bring it here and it became it, and there's a which I, I think I've referenced before on the podcast there's a very fabulous there's a guy named Raymond Chandler who was kind of like the uh, 
10 years later after Hammett comes out, he's like the next generation. And he, he's very influential. And we can get into him uh, in a little while. He writes a, a, a essay called the, Art of, the Simple Art of Murder. And he talks about, he's a little mad in 1950 when he writes this essay that people are slagging off now this detective genre and what it's become. And he's trying to say like, you know, he, he makes the example that, you know, the British had turned it into this very proper thing. It had to have uh, certain characters. It was almost set in a room. Uh, you had a detective and something happened and it was just a very elaborate way this guy could have got, a, got away with doing the crime or whatever. Where, as you said, Hammett and some other people take the detective and they make it more realistic, set it in the street. And as Raymond Chandler says in his essay, you know, he gives uh, Hammett, Raymond Chandler says in his essay that Hammett gives us a reason to have a body now and not just to have a body in a room to be uh, the MacGuffin of a detective story for the English uh, hero. It is now we have motivations and it it becomes a very realistic thing of, of where people are. So these detective novels with the advent of silent movies going in the teens and twenties, these short stories, which are appearing in magazines like the black mask, which was a very famous detective magazine because back then people would, you know, buy periodicals off the newsstands. So a lot of these writers were writing short stories that were appearing in magazines. So you had the detective, uh, these new stories being very, 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 uh, popular as well as like science fiction so we get like doc savage and we get like uh buck rogers coming out uh so people are digesting them that way and then like you said it doesn't become until the 1930 right around the advent of sound that then they're hollywood is looking for content that in film these detective stories take off you have a couple charlie chan silent movies that are that have been um lost to time but when you hit sound you really get an onslaught of these detective movies uh for the talkies yeah. You know, one of the, touch on one of the things you, you just mentioned. One of the reasons why, you know, when you're talking about Chandler talking about like motivations and stuff, part, part of that is like the rise in popularity or at least awareness of psychoanalysis at the time. Yes. Which yes. wasn't really uh, talked about or was taboo. I mean, probably still was a bit taboo at that point, the, the idea of going to a quote unquote shrink. Uh, you know, obviously people look at Psycho as being like this big pioneer because of the big explanation at the end of like, you know, the, the, the psychiatrist comes in and he talks about, you know, all the psychoanalysis stuff that's going on with Norman Bates and the motivations there and why he's killing people. Which is like the advent of Sigmund Freud and all that stuff in the, the turn of the century, all these psycho people psychoanalyzing the yeah. self and the idiom and me, yeah. Like by 1960, everybody's aware of like, understands that idea and like the Freudian, like the mother and what, and then again, of course, peeping Tom the same year. But what's happening in the 20s when they're writing this story, maybe it's not coming up as often as like direct uh, mentioning of psychoanalysis, but psychoanalysis is popular enough that now the authors and then the screenwriters that are going to start writing film noir movies a couple of years after Maltese Falcon, they start using this idea of psychoanalysis of like, let's explain why they're doing it or just like start looking at motivations in a, in a more of, you know, like you were saying, Dion, like less of just like a MacGuffin as the like 
it's just the murder or whatever is the reason why the story is happening as to like, why is, why did that murder happen? And it, it then is the thing that launches us into, which we'll get into later. Now's not the time to get into it, but the whole, like the film noir movies that come into the mid forties yeah. and the darkness of all that stuff. So it's, like we do on this it's, show. Yeah, that's why it's so it's so convoluted and, and <laughs> just everything. There's a lot happened. of layers of onion. You know, you know? like and then that's fluid. not even to mention that it's just like you know World War One and you know and well that's the, the thing the I want to bring depression up because is start is just about to hit when this is written. Th- these are very big elements that I want to that I'm going to make my own leaps for later on. When we talk about the Sam Spade character to quote the Simple Art of Murder essay that I that I was muddling over, which uh, Raymond Chandler says about Hammett. He says, um, let's see. Hammett, quote, Hammett wrote for people with a sharp, aggressive attitude to life. They were not afraid of the seamy side of things. They lived it. They lived there. Violence did not dismay them. It was right down their street. And this is the important part here. He says, Hammett gave murder back to the kind of people that commit it for reasons, not to just provide a corpse. He puts these people down on paper as they were and made them talk and think the language that was customarily used for these purposes, unquote. So meaning here, it's that, you know, in the old days, you'd have it, it became like, a, like almost like a, a, a style where you'd have the very principled, you had these detectives, uh, the, especially British, there, there was a subgenre called the gentleman detective in, in, the, in the 20s. And you start seeing people like, um, especially in the talkie movies, that start coming up, but you have, uh, uh, Jesus, Sherlock Holmes, certainly, but you have Harky Perot, you have, uh, geez, who else do you have? I had a whole, I just lost my train of thought. Uh, Charlie Chan, Mr. Moto, you have all these guys who are very courtesy gentlemen, you know, smiles on their face, very pleasant, and they come and solve this, uh, you know, uh, uh, crazy mystery. Uh, that becomes in the 30s something that you see a whole bunch of slew of a lot of these movies. You see the Nick and Nora, uh, Thin Man uh, movies, which is also um, uh, Dashiell Hammett wrote. And uh, by the time you get to the late 30s, you start getting the Continental Op stories or the Sam Spade stories, which are the little more the grittier. They're these characters are almost indistinguishable from like a gangster. And this is new for people when they're reading it in the twenties, uh, as well as then seeing it in the late thirties. And it's a literary style, which he's praised for Hammett because it's very simple to the point. It's very descriptive. It's almost like it's scripts, screenplays of what's happening and it's raw and it's, and and you can't trust anybody. It's very realistic. Everybody's got a problem. And he ends up developing what we can get into the continental op, which is this character who works for the the continental, uh, what is it? The continental detective agency. And it's a guy who you never meet his name. Uh, you never know his backstory. He resembles very much like Bob Hoskins and, and Who Framed Roger Rabbit. He's a shorter guy who's a little heavier, bald, almost like for people who know who he is, William, William Conrad and, and Cannon. And he becomes the, the not particularly a good-looking guy, and he becomes this operator who is sent uh, in, these sto- in these short stories to different places to solve a crime. And he gets there, and he ends up forming this template of these stories where he gets there into a town where there's already a, 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 a quote-unquote fiction that's already happened, and the de- detective has to go in, interview people, uh, do some research, uh, not take a side, be nonpartisan, also 
make people come together who don't want to be together, who have to then fight it out so that he can get an answer or he takes both sides. And this becomes an archetype, this continental operator that becomes wildly successful. And he writes like 90 Hammett, I think, short stories um, altogether. I forget how many he writes at the Continental Op. Before, in I think it's 1929, he starts writing a series of short stories which are uh, continuous epic that end up becoming the, the Maltese Falcon with Sam Spade. Yeah, well, I think the thing that can't... A lot there. A lot to, lot to digest. <laughs> the thing that can't be kind of stressed enough, and he's not the first one to kind of start writing this genre, like Carol John Daly in the, in the mid-20s. Yeah. He wrote a short story called The False Burton uh, Combs, which was published in Black uh, Mask Magazine, which then later, that's when this, that's when Maltese Falcon, as a serial story that that also gets published in black mass before it becomes a uh, a novel in itself but the thing that i think is important to mention about hammett is that you know usually when we're looking at writers we're looking at writers who are trying to write about a subject whereas hammett was the subject trying to write i mean he was a detective from like 1915 to 1922, he was a Pinkerton detective, which was basically like a company brand name. Yeah, Pinkerton was a big company that used to like, you could hire them to watch stagecoaches. They can do things. They were a big agency uh, who had been around by that time for maybe 50, 60 years. And they're very well known. People may not know them a lot today. But the Pinkerton men were like, you know, uh, of the, the first huge detective agency that was used for any purposes. Detective work, protection, bodyguard, whatever. And... Uh, he becomes a Pinkerton for a couple years out of the Baltimore office, and he is a private investigator for those years. He walks the walk, does the talk, learns from these people, and he that's what he models his continental op stories on is his time being a Pinkerton and all this stuff. And then he ends up going to signing up for World War I in 1918, but I think he gets sick quickly. He gets the Spanish flu, and then he gets tuberculosis, yeah. and that bedrids him for... Maybe what a, a year or two. He can't. He he he's you know his his physically he's he's, he's uh, disabled and he can't really do much. So he's so he's trying to figure out ways to supplement his time. So he starts writing a little bit. He gets a little better and he becomes a Pinkerton again. And then he's a Pinkerton for a short period of time. And then during that time is this idea because of what ends up becoming Hammett's. Uh, he's at, with his politics is that he goes to Montana and helps break up like uh, strike. He's a strike breaker for the Pinkertons. And uh, he really gets uh, kind of like uh, sour to the whole idea of it all. And he leaves the Pinkertons also because of his health. By that time, he's really frailing and he gets home. and He's like, I need to figure out a way to supplement, you know, make money for the family he has. And even by that time, the, I think his family, he has a, he meets a nurse while he's convalescing up in, Washington State, and that's why a lot of his stories take place either California, San Francisco, or whatever. He marries the nurse. The nurse gets pregnant. They go down. They settle in San Francisco. He may have two kids at that time, but then the doctor's orders are you can't even be near the, the kids because you're worried about the TB's bad. You might, I think, spread it. So he has to go live by himself. So while he's writing out in his prime, I think it was he was writing up to 5,000 words a day. So he starts doing all these different short stories. The first short story for the Continental Op is called Arson Plus. And they become so successful, he's able to then, you know, make his major career be writing. 
Yeah, well, that's like basically my point is that like he's not a writer trying to think like a detective to write a story about a detective. He's a detective who then, because of circumstance, decides he needs to write because he's sick and that's the only way he can make money at that point. So it's just like it gives it a whole different point of view that, you know, it's, it's all it's an authenticity. Yeah. And didn't you know, really it's like, exist. you know, and that's what I, I love about that kind of thing. When you, you know, you he's he's showing you in the stories, he's employing these elements that you see about how to, you know, the tricks of the trade. And you're like, wow, I would never have thought of that. But, you know, he knows about him because he was in the field, you know. So it's almost like I think Sherlock Holmes talks about, you know, knowing all these different things about. It's very interesting about you have to know so much about a said topic, especially if you're an author. So, uh, you know, when you're writing about something, it's one thing if you're trying to fake it to make it but then if you're actually the person who was in that line of work and then you start writing about it it's going to just yeah. be so natural and that's probably i think why it was so uh uh hitting for people yeah i mean and when we start talking about like the story itself i mean uh we can get into this more but other than spade like each one of those characters is actually based on somebody that he met or knew yeah. while he was a detective and um you know he's he's talked about that and we can talk about when we get, like I said, when we get there, we start talking about the characters. We can talk about like who it's based on in real life and stuff like that. But it just adds, like you said, it adds like an air of authenticity to it. And it kind of, it's weird. It takes away, he takes away some of the romanticism of like, maybe oh, not romanticism, yeah. but like the gloss of it. Uh, yeah. And, you know, and. And, and that's in, something you're seeing in literature too at the time. With uh, people like F. Scott Fitzgerald writing The Great Gatsby or um, uh, Hemingway at the time, you're starting to see those kind of realistic 20th century how we know writing. It was we're getting out of that Victorian era, and we're you know end of World War One kind of ends the Industrial Revolution. They say after World War One that ends the 19th century, so to speak. We get into the 20th century mentality. Yeah. So you're saying yeah, these this technique he's writing is very raw, very powerful, very realistic, quote unquote. You know, and that's why it's a crossover appeal. And I think also he, oh, I, I did so much research, uh, I'm mucking it up. But I think women start, and this is the interesting thing too, is it becomes popular with women as well. So he's a crossover hit, you know, with uh, these stories because of their authenticity and uh, the the hard-boiled nature of them all, sure. you know. Well, being like strong women ends up becoming, I don't, you know, it's, it's, there's so so much to talk about. I, I know, the, but like the idea of like strong, powerful women becomes a you know a big archetype in the film noir movies, which are kind of spawned out of this hard boiled fiction. Um, yeah, it, the femme fatale. You almost. know, there's a lot to. I, I'm just. Yeah. Gonna, I got to keep a list of things that I want. I know I that's why it's later. just. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, and then as you if you follow, there's this beautiful book. The heat, you know, uh, uh, now it's called I think the Big Book of Continental. Of, of the Continental Op, but they, in 2017, they released, they compiled all those short stories, including Red Harvest, which is the Continental Op, and then the Dane Curse, which is also the Continental Hop, and it's Op, and it's in this big, big, big encyclopedia-like book. And you can almost see a progression of that character. As he goes, he becomes more detached from um, the world. He gets a little more... Uh, you know, almost it's it's you know he becomes like the Eastwood character in The Man with No Name, or or these kind of characters as you go on. The he becomes the Sam Spade, uh, hard boiled, you know, affected quote unquote kind of character, and he talks about in the in the and 
in the Continental Ops stories, he has to answer to the main office, and in the main office is a guy, the old man. And Hammett based this on a character he used to know. There was a guy, he his mentor at the uh, Pickerton Agency was this guy he based the old man off of, and he talks about... Um, He's the character of the Continental Op is worried that he's going to become so numb to it all. He's going to become like the old man at the home office or it's a guy who's after 50 years of sleuthing, he's left with nothing, no feelings. And he is he's just dead to everything. And that's what you end up seeing with with these characters as they progress. They the realities of the world, the backstabs, the you know, and certainly with Sam Spade, you see that. Where it's uh, you can't trust anybody, and certainly, like you're saying, with empowering the female in it, not only do they become uh, empowered and become a, a, a equal level with the with the male uh, character, they even become the villain, or they become the one that is going to be using their uh, their their feminine ways uh, that will naturally be a, a, a men sometimes have no defense against. Yeah, and you know our characters in these stories must fight against or combat. Well. Maltese Falcon, uh, specifically, is a story about greed, really. <laughs> and yeah. uh, he wrote it in 1928. Uh, he started writing it in 1928. And, this is, and then the Great Depression hits in 29. So obviously that's kind of in the air at that time. Um, had And I think by that point he has Red Harvest comes out. Which, as we said, that ends up being a fistful of dollars and um, Yojimbo. But that story comes out starring the Continental Op in its, you know, put in magazine form first and put out as a novel. And that's highly successful. And then he does another Continental Op, which is the Dane Curse. That is highly successful. And then, as you're saying, yes, like 29, he starts writing these stories that are part one, part two, that appear in uh, Black Mask, the magazine, which end up becoming uh, the Maltese Falcon. But yeah, political events, the Roaring Twenties and hitting, and then with the stock market crash of 29 into the Depression, uh, you start seeing um, these social... El- and then after World War One, you know, people, we always talk about World War Two or, you know, st- uh, stuff affecting the, uh, the American psyche and how it affects the audience and the characters. And certainly after World War One, that's the end. People come back from that so messed up, you know, with... with what they used to call shell shock, which is now uh, PTSD and all this other ailments and going into the twenties and, you know, the roaring twenties with the, with the drinking and the celebrations because we're done with war and we want to be again, uh, isolationists and screw Europe and what's going on over there with the treaty of Versailles and Germany getting mad, uh, that, you know, all this feeds into these, these characters until the, you know, with the, the depression and the crash. Yeah, and the well, Dust Bowl and all that stuff. It's easy to forget about, you know, having context, world, having World War II be such a impactful, uh, important event for obviously the world, but art and cinema. That it's easy to forget, like how equally impactful World War One was. I mean, that's where we get the rise of like the horror movie and yeah, uh, things like Freaks and. Uh, the German, know, those Lon silent Chaney. German movies. Yeah, you know, Lon Chaney often is playing this disfigured, uh, mis- uh, disfigured character in these movies, and it's because, like, on top of World War One having this impact of like technology being like the most deadly up to that date, 
it also medical technology managed to save a lot of these people, but they were coming back with like half their face blown off or without legs, without arms. And yeah, then addicted to morphine. And that totally. And then just the idea of like Germany's loss and that impacting that German expressionism, which then impacts horror and then all this stuff, it's all playing into it. I mean, it's all part art is nothing. If it's not a reflection of the time it's made. Um, yeah. And even the ones, whether it's film or what it pop music or whatever, even the ones that don't seem to be art, there's still a reflection of what's happening at that time. And the fact that like the great depression is just about to hit when he starts writing these stories. I mean, it's no, you know, he's, and also a guy who's been a uh, detective. He's, yeah, I think he worked f- uh, for a jeweler at a jewelry company as like a, I forget in what capacity. I mean, he's writing about greed and the way and what greed can do to, you know, the ugliness that it can uh, bring out in people. Yeah. And because it's just about pretty soon, like people are not going to have anything. And, yeah. you know, so it's 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 something that yeah. is not just the the fact that he's writing about it, but it's the reason why it resonates so highly or, or so, it's, it's such a, it's so important to the reader at that point is because it's people can relate to it because of the time. I mean, the, the, the depression was so impactful. People, a lot of people are going through a lot of tough times now with everything going on in the world. And to think about back in the time of the depression, people were standing in line to eat. You know, there were songs called, Hey brother, can you spare me a dime? You know, um, Rose of, not Roosevelt. Um, uh, yes, Roosevelt. Sorry. Uh, you know, he had to, it's almost like the, 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 the great new deal where they had to figure out ways to employ there's, you know, and not only is the depression hitting, what ends up happening is there's this catastrophic event that happens over the course of, I think the, the Western hemisphere, but it comes down from Canada, these epic, epic storms that completely destroy the land in the, uh, the, the West and the north central the central uh, continent of North America, and it's terrible. And these people who had settled there for how many years on these farms just lose everything. They lose there. That's why they call it the Dust Bowl because they literally had these storms for for months on end of this this of just these dust storms and it would just blow everything away. And these people are left with nothing. Yeah. Their land is nothing. They can't pay the mortgage. They can't the crops. You know, the land is infertile. The the, the animals have died. They're malnourished. They've got kids to feed. Very much like that uh, Cohen Brothers, our old brother, were Arthur. Yeah. So what do you do? They pack up and they leave. So you had these caravans of people. Hence the Grapes of Wrath movie, or the movie, the book that then is the movie, where you see these people just, you know, with gaunt faces traveling in like these Model Ts almost with like chairs, tables on top, just trying to go west to get out of this. So you have this decimation across the country of, of economics with the stock market crash, then mixed with the Dust Bowl. So, and that, so that's why you see Hollywood in the advent of sound doing these big zinging movies because like we've talked about, it's the escapism. People yeah. go to the movies to try to get away from their daily problems and pain. So they're seeing these big, you know, Aside from the, the, uh, uh, this, the, the, what is it? The effect itself of hearing a sound movie, a talkie, or a music, you know, that, that allure of seeing that, that just being as the gimmick, like I guess 3D would be for us or something. Sure. That they're going and seeing these great, you know. So 
uh, well, cinema just, is reflecting that, trying yeah. to keep people's I mean, like, hopes up. It's going to be really interesting to see when, you know, now that production, we rebound. production is starting again. Because, I mean, it's really like, in, in a lot of ways, kind of in the same place. I mean, both people are waiting in line for food. People are out of work. There's half the country is fucking on fire, <laughs> destroying people's yeah. homes. I mean, it's really I'm, like, I'm, in a weird way, I'm it's, not kind of, it's kind of come full circle it's in a very uh, morbidly bizarre way. Yeah, Orwin kind of way. I'm, 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 it's a huge conversation to get into, but I'm highly pessimistic about the future of especially cinema and what's going on now and all that kind of stuff and just yeah. where we're at artistically with everything. But it, it would be interesting to see where we, where do we go now? Uh, you know, and Hammett, he, uh, writes Maltese Falcon. It's an instant hit. And I think Warner options it and he gets paid. I think he gets like, uh, maybe $8,500 for the option for, 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 um, the Maltese Falcon. He goes on to write two other, Sam Spade, three other, I'm sorry, Sam Spade short stories, one of which I read um, called A Man Named Spade is the first one, then there's two others. Uh, and then there's a, a fourth that ends up showing up, like 2013, they find it, and it ends up being published recently, which I haven't read yet. But The Man Named Spade is interesting because it is almost like an homage to those older um, Agatha Christie stories where it's a short story because it's in the magazines but it's and it, they all come out the three of them one's in july one's in october and one's in uh november i think it's like 32 they come out and that one a man named spade the continuum after Maltese falcon uh you have the two characters the cop dundee you have um uh pole house the other cop the detective and then you have sam spade and he calls effie but it's all like a murder happens they show up to a room uh, and they have to figure it all out. And since it's a show story, it really takes place within the room. So it's kind of like an homage to one of those Harky Perot or Miss Marple kind of stories where there's a dead body and one of you guys committed it. Let's figure out who did it, you know, with the butler being there and all. So that's kind of funny. But then he ends up, we could talk about where his career goes. But I guess we can also say he, what's interesting is he is very prolific in these years. And Hammett's career only goes for about a dozen years. And then in 1934, he kind of stops and he runs out of gas. He's battled alcoholism his whole life because of his ailments and everything going on with his life. He had a, a couple people he was uh, he was having romantic relationships with. He ended up developing a relationship with another woman um, who I forget her name offhand, but then she ends up being very... Uh, popular on uh, Broadway with the children's hour. She writes a lot of some plays that he ends up helping her write. And, uh, you know, but he stops writing really around 34 and he tries, you know, he just starts living off the residuals because his, his, by that time, the thin man comes out uh, in, I forget when the thin man comes out, but that ends up starting a whole series, like seven or four or five different thin man movies, which he writes, I think, a script for two or three afterward. And then he gives these the copyright for there's a, The Adventures of Sam Spade on the radio. So he ends up keeping going with his residuals. For, but he, you know, he doesn't end up writing because then he ends up dying maybe, I think, in 1960, I think he dies finally of, of, of lung-related illness because of the TB and all that stuff. But for those 20 years, he doesn't write. He's helping her. And he was doing a comic strip for a while. He was doing uh, Secret Agent X9. He was submitting story ideas for because comic strips were huge at the time. But he's, he kind of stops. 
And it's weird, and it, he becomes old news, and it's kind of sad, and that's where Raymond Chandler and all these other guys take over, and then the pushing with film noir. But uh, yeah, well, this they, movie's optioned. They even yeah. say that, you know, the fact that, I mean, it, it ultimately ends up being titled Maltese Falcon after the book, but um, the fact that, like, that wasn't a given, and that in 36 there was a movie based on it that isn't, called Maltese Falcon. The fact that say Satan middle lady. Yeah. The fact that, you know, this idea, like they're not even going to push the, like advertise the fact that this is based on Maltese Falcon by the actual habit is evidence of that. Like he was kind of old news by that. <laughs> yeah. There, there's an issue they do in, in 1931. I think it is. They do. They do the first film. They do a Maltese Falcon movie and that's straight. Uh, it's interesting. I watched that and the other one for this as well, uh, because I had a double disc edition of it and it's a pretty good movie. It's, it's, it's slow because it's an early movie. It's 1931. So they're trying to feel their way around having a talkie. Um, you got a guy named, um, Ricardo Cortez. He's playing this, this, the Sam Spade character. I found him very engaging, but he's interesting, a portrayal of Sam Spade. Uh, there's other people in it who you don't really know, but the other standout person for me is Dwight Fry. Dwight Fry, who we've brought up on this cast a bit, who is Fritz in Frankenstein. He's um, uh, what else is he in that we 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 uh, he's in Dracula. He's Renfield in Dracula. That's it. And he's a whole bunch of movies till he passes away in like 1939. Uh, he's in it as Wilmer, and it's a really young role uh, for him, and he's great in it. So they do that movie, but that movie's pre-code. So because it's pre-code, it stays very, again, uh, faithful to the novel. So there's some things in the novel that they're able to get away with that we could talk about in this 31 movie. So they, Warner goes to re-release it in 35 or 36, and because now we've implemented the Hayes Code, um, it doesn't pass the censors. So Warner's like, shit. So what they do is they jimmy the script up a bit, and they make a Betty Davis vehicle, and they do a movie called Satan Men a Lady, which is actually, um, I had it on this double disc, so I was like, oh, I'll give it a watch. And my wife's like, fucking Jesus. So we watch that, <laughs> and then it's, and it's Betty, young Betty Davis, and she's kind of almost playing a Gracie Allen kind of a role, but it's a fun movie. It's basically like the Get Shorty version. It's like the 90s version, because it's a semi-comedy, uh, the, the Warner Williams who plays the Sam Spade character in it. It's kind of weird. He ends up being the first person to play Perry, uh, Perry Mason as well, I think, on, on the screen, that, that actor. But it, I, I recommend it for people who, who would yeah. really like the Maltese Falcon because it's a really interesting role. Yeah, It's uh, also it's interpretation. Worth, it's worth noting that the 1931 version, I, I've, found, I've seen it under two titles, Maltese Falcon, but also yeah. a, a title, The Dangerous Female. So those are... I think the... Yeah, the issue was you couldn't get for years the because because the the code wouldn't let you release it. People couldn't see that movie for years until like 1966. Uh, that movie didn't become available, and I think maybe to hide it, and the, if they didn't want people to confuse it by when it was re released of the famous movie we're covering today, the 41 version of Maltese Falcon, they retitled it so it'd be something else. So it's f weird that by the time now we hit 1941, 40, I would say, you're getting. This is the third interpretation already in 10 years of this work, you know, and that's nothing new at the time of Hollywood of, uh, you know, the movies that they would do originally as a silent movie that then they maybe remake as a talkie. So, but Dashiell Hammett, you know, the Thin Man is hugely popular. So by the time Satan Meets a Lady comes out in 36, they're saying Dashiell Hammett, writer of, um, you know, Nick and Nora, 
So it's like they're only billing him off a thin man. They're not even, like you're saying, mentioning the original Maltese Falcon. Uh, and G- Gina, uh, I want to say Gina Davis, Betty Davis, who's in it, she calls it like the worst movie she ever did in an interview. And, and I don't think it's that bad, you know, but, you know, she's certainly, it's a, it's a vehicle for her. And I'm thinking, I don't think there's, I felt like there was some other person in it that was that was notable as well. But it's worth seeing if you could track it down, as well as the original. Uh, and it's funny because you see the different interpretations because the first movie, you see these other people playing these characters you know and love. So it's yeah. like, wow, you know. And I he loved Dwight Fry to see him in, in something, you know, like that. He's also in The Black Camel, which is the first Charlie Chan movie that survived, which is freaking amazing from like 1931 as well. Uh because it's all acetate at the time. So what happens is we lost a lot of those silent movies and a lot of the early talkies. So um, we get to this point where John Houston, well, it's uh, just son of, it's, you know, it's, yeah. it's just worth pointing out that like people complain about remakes now. It just goes to yeah, show yeah. you within, ta- within a 10 year period, Warner Brothers made three different <laughs> versions of that movie. Yeah. So it's just it's always it's always been that way. Yeah, I mean, people forget the House of Wax, the Vincent Price movie. That's a remake of a Lionel Atwell movie or all these different... Ben-Hur was already remade, you know? So there's so many... These Wizard of Oz was a remake at the time. Uh, Frankenstein, you know, yeah. all these people... Unfair to Remember was a remake. Mm-hmm. I mean, they were all... High Society yeah. was a remake of Philadelphia Story. It's just... It's funny by that time. And then you think about... I mean, this is when the movie industry was an industry. So Warner's everything under their hat they're shitting out these movies i mean uh when we talk about humphrey bogart it's like humphrey bogart made i think 28 movies in like a five-year period you know they're just turning out there's the entire departments you know it's it's basically like a conveyor belt yeah. or uh, what well, do you call that assembly line an even more fascinating thing i mean that's a whole so i think that's why in, you, and, in and of itself yeah. which is that like to imagine that it was a medium, like it was film, motion pictures didn't really exist before the 1890s, you know? Like, yeah. And, and then it's just like, you know, it's the train pulling into the station. It's a yeah. woman feeding a the baby. girls kissing. <laughs> the old, the old, what did we always say? The first freaking snuff film. Let's kill an elephant with electricity on a rail to see how it looks and film it. You know, but so in a. A matter of just like <laughs> that's the that's the um the the Einstein is it Einstein does that it's the Einstein faces of death <laughs> he was the first one oh know? Edison yeah sorry Edison not Einstein Edison yeah. and his faces of death <laughs> it's know? but it's just like you know so by you know there really wasn't an industry until like nine you know nineteen hundred ish so then. That was all north here, too. It was all, you know, around where Blake and I are now, New Jersey, New York City, you know, until they realize out west they can substitute out west for any kind of locale. That's yeah, why they move the, out there. The, for the weather's space. a little bit nicer. So yeah, but it's crazy to think, like, for, for the first, for, you know, until the 30s, probably, like, Humphrey Borgart moves out to Hollywood in 1930 until the end of the 20s. Yeah. People are making movies here in, like, New Jersey or Brooklyn or oh, all yeah. that. Yeah, I mean, stuff. Buster, crazy. Buster yeah. Keaton's original film studio was like a block away from where I used to live, which was like, you know, in like the the 50s near, on 10th or 11th. <laughs> um, and that's, inc- yeah. And there he, was even in for, yeah. I was going to say, until he moved out to California and then he took over Chaplin's studio out there. But it's just like my, I'm just saying, like, it is amazing to see like how quickly it became like a full on out assembly line, big you know, huge industry. I mean, starting obviously yeah. in silence, but by the time 
sound came around by, by 1941. So in a span of like 40 years, which, you know, seems a lot longer when you're little. But, little now, but now that we're yeah. now that I'm 42, <laughs> you kind of realize like, by. that's not like, you know, the fact that's from you like 1979 or 78 when you're born to now. <laughs> that's how much the progression. Of, it's I mean, it's like Internet. You look at, you know, it's how fast you look at being born in 1900. You're, you're seeing the advent of, well, the train's already there, but the car, you know, uh, planes, the, the record is there. But then the telephone as well to the radio, the phonograph goes to, um, you know, it's so much happens in the 20th century during the industrial revolution yeah. and everything. But it just shows you and, like how, um, it just shows you like how money gets things done because like all of a sudden it's, it's yeah, like, war, there's, yeah. there's money to be made here. And then it's like, okay, studios, yeah. you know, the Warner brothers start off with like a Nickelodeon and then they just exhibited like, you know, the great train robbery. And that's the only film they had. And then in a matter of just like a decade or so, they have a whole studio. <laughs> and, and it and it's another, yeah. And it's an example of them, how it kills an industry. Vaudeville completely dies because by the thirties, people are now going to the movies to see talkies and they tried to keep vaudeville going by having you, you know, have a live act and then you watch a movie and then another live act. But by that time people are like, nah, screw that. And you know, there's, there's people who are like, I'm not going to go to radio or, movies that's you know that's a that's like a uh that's a fad you know i'm gonna stay here or it's gonna you know live yeah. performance and then you know by i'd say 1940 or the mid 40s kind of for the most part um you know vaudeville is completely dead but even watching i brought up before the black camel which was the f- first charlie chan warner olin movie that survives looking at that and like that's like 1930 1931 you look at movies from the like the first Maltese falcon here 31 uh, to 1941, where this new Maltese Falcon comes out, just the even the advent of how they're even the mise en scene or the the grasp of technology in there, how they're able to do it. Where all these movies back then, you know, were, they were shooting them like they were doing stage plays, like a Prometheum Arch. You know, you're watching. You know, so that's why they're still learning. You know, oh, you can jump in, you could do cuts. So within 10 years, you see these movies are kind of basic or shot on studios on sets and then within 10 years you don't have that noise anymore of the of the sound you don't have all this stuff and the that's why I brought up the black camel is such an oddity because it's 1930 and they're on location in Hawaii Bela Lugosi's in it as when he's still a stud like right when Dracula came out and they're like they could still play him as a leading man before he got kind of typecast so he's in it as like a hypnotist and they're on the beach doing these crazy shots. So you think about like for 1930, how much they needed. It's like a sunny day and you could tell they needed so much more light. You know, the people like walking, like it's bright, (laughs) you know, and they're doing tracking shots. There's shots of people surfing at the beginning. And it's like, how did you get a camera in 1930 that big on a surfboard? You know, so it's like, yeah, exactly. It is on like a like a tank turret, you know. So that's an oddity. It, that, that's why I say people go back and watch. People go back and watch the Black Camel, the only surviving, uh, because he they did four off the original stories that um what's his face uh, Earl Durr Bigger did on Charlie Chan, and that's the only one that survived because all the other ones got lost. Uh, but by 1941, this is my long winded point. Is so you can even see in the period of how quick they're, you know, they don't have any sound in the 20s, and you see all these silent movies which are good, and then you hit t- sound in like 27 or so, and then that completely 
destroys the silent movie industry for people who were trying to make a living in the silent movie industry, people who couldn't segue to talkies because of their voice or whatever. And then within a 10-year period from 30 to 40, how sophisticated we get with technology where movies are looking like movies we know them today. Yeah. They're not just looking like someone taping a stage play somewhere or they're using real bullets and guns, you know, like in Public Enemy or Angels with Dirty Faces, you know, just get out of the way and then we'll unload this Thompson at the wall. And they're like, yeah, okay, yeah. Oh, that's safe. <laughs> no, don't worry. It'll be fine. You know, so it's just yeah. fascinating, like you're saying, how quick the, cine- the, the the movie industry got going, Yeah, you know, and the departments and you're under contract. You're a, if you're a contract player for Warner, that means, you know, once a week you're making a new movie. It's kind of like, I guess, being like on Saturday Night Live or something like that. Sure. You know, you're getting yeah. handed a script. They're saying, you know, you're doing this this week, and then you get a script saying, here, memorize this. You're starting this next week. You know, and you can't you can't really, you don't have that much wiggle room of what you can and can't do. I think the the bigger you are, you can. Yeah. But this also inhibit, this, this inhibits people, and we'll get on that where Peter Lorre almost fell into that trap, was sort of saved by this, but then later on kind of falls in the trap again. You know, because some sure. of the... the the companies they pigeonhole people because they're you know it's like a big it's a big corporation so they're just like you know you you do what you do and we're going to keep you like that you know so yeah well i mean it's basically we're talking about like by 1941 the studio system is in full swing everybody's under contract and this is a good point this is a good time to bring you know start talking about john houston who was a writer he was he was a screenwriter and he had written some you know uh, great films and he his dad is walter houston who was a big actor at the time like you're saying john is a writer and john's getting annoyed because the shit he's writing is getting changed when it's getting made yeah. he's getting frustrated with that you know so in the true uh spirit of uh independent filmmaking which by the way it's interesting to note that you know he had he was friends with hawks and that's and there's an alleged story Howard of, Hawks yeah of how Hawks influenced him to do this movie Hawks to my understanding never signed a contract with the studio so he was an independent contractor wow. throughout, his, throughout his whole career which was really not that's an oddity yeah it was a real oddity but so but maybe the fact that they were friends you know kind of inspired him to he said look if i'm if my store my screenplays are going to get told the way i envision them i'm going to have to start directing yeah because he was making very successful movies he was writing but they just were like you know they were getting some you know they were getting changed and he's like for fuck's sake he's this so he's like i'm going to do my own but then people were like well just because you're walter houston's son doesn't mean we can throw you a movie but he did something clever with an option where he figured out where he did some sort of option where they're going to have to let him do a lesser known movie. So it was almost like he was doing a low budget independent movie where, you know, we'll give you this amount of money. If you deliver us three scripts for this, you can make your own movie. And he's like, okay, well, basically, I mean, that's it. This movie wouldn't have gotten made if it was a big picture. I mean, now we look back on it and it's like, Oh, it's the Maltese Falcon, but it was a small, but it was a small picture with a relatively unknown cast with a first time director. The story that I was alluding to, and again, it's alleged. Nobody knows except for Houston and Hawks whether this is true. And they're gone, so we'll never know. But apparently, Houston was talking to Hawks and says, You know, I want to direct. And Hawks said, You know what you should do? Is you should do. A, you, should <laughs> do like us. you should do the Maltese Falcon. And you should just follow the book. And then that, yeah. should, that should be your first movie. Whether that's true or not, 
you know, like I said, we'll ne- we'll never know. But he he comes up with this idea. He wants we'll have to, to go ask Mister Owl. <laughs> Mister Owl, did Howard Hawks the world <laughs> one two? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so I mean, the, and the other story is that when he decided this is what he wanted to do, he took the book and he gave it to his uh, secretary, and he said, "Just transcribe this into script form. Just go through the book yeah. and write every page down, and just put it in a f- script format." And well, the- because the sidebar is because Hammond at the time. Since uh, film is coming out, he writes Maltese Falcon with the idea of it being made into a film. So since he did Red Harvest and Dane Kirst under his belt, he says, you know what, I'm going to... So he writes it, and it's very cinematic. There's very little... I don't think there's any kind of inner thought. You know, it's almost just like what's... It's very, very sparse. You know, it's very just... I like that. Very just you know, uh, condensed stuff. So he writes it so well that it's almost like it's a movie script. So he, yeah. So Houston has a secretary translated into, you know, shots and that kind of a thing is in dialogue here or there. Um, as you were alluding to. Yeah. And then apparently somehow Jack Warner, who's the head of the studio sees this script. Well, Cause they submit them. So they didn't realize like we're talking about, there's a pipeline. She finishes it, puts it on her desk to get copied. They send to Houston. She doesn't realize one's copy CC to the office. Yeah. So it, then comes across Warner's desk and Warner sees it. And then Warner, like you're saying, Warner's like, what? The? Okay. What does he say to him? He's like, you're, you're doing this next week. And he's like, what the fuck? <laughs> yeah. And he liked it enough to say, okay, like it was a property they owned. There had been two other versions, but uh, you know, like I said, they ended up uh, war. Uh, but they say like Warner's like, you're, you're doing this next week. He's like, yeah, you know, this looks great. Start going. And Houston's yeah. like, whoa. And so they had, okay, okay, we got to go. Yeah. And Houston ends up tightening up the, the script a little bit. And uh, he eliminates a couple of scenes and a couple of two minor characters. But for the most part, just follows. The we can book get to that. Yeah. Pretty closely. Uh, they end up making it for three hundred and eighty one thousand uh, dollars. They shot it in thirty four days. Uh, from June to July of 1941. There are some reshoots in, in August and September. Uh, he, like I said, he's a first-time director, fairly unknown cast. Basically, it's like a B, low-budget picture, and they're willing to yeah. make it a go. Like Dion was saying, they made a deal with them, and they said, okay, you know, we can't get... This is like, you know, whatever. It's a, <laughs> it's small, it's a yeah. small movie. Give somebody a, tra- a chance. And um, they, if you notice, a lot of it's interiors. So they shoot a lot of it on sets. You know, it's very easy to make. And um, uh, Houston is getting his cast together. And um, uh, there, are, Blake said there are two minor things that we can talk about when we get into the movie of what he had to cut out because of censors. There was uh, um, references to homosexuality with Peter Lorre's character, which we can talk about later. And then there's a, there's a dicey scene with uh, Bridget O'Shaughnessy, which who's the female lead, which he cuts out. And then he gets rid of the lawyer character, which you see at one point, Humphrey Borgard is having phone conversations with a lawyer and he gets rid of uh, Peter, Sidney Greenstreet's daughter. There's a scene in that where he meets the daughter who's been drugged um, and he gets rid of that. But for the most part, he keeps it as is they start. There's a story where they start the basis. They grab the 1931 script and they look at that and they use that as a jumping board as well because they already have that. That's translated basically for the most part. So all the dialogue really, I'm not going to say 100% of it, but like 95% of the dialogue in the 31 movie and then in this movie is all from the book. 
So that means it's all Hammett. So that's the reason why you start to realize why people like Hammett, where he says stuff like, you know, um, at the beginning when Miles Archer, you know, is talking to Sam Spade, the, the, the detective partner, he goes, you know, he looks at the money, he goes, you know, and he has brothers in her purse. Like he's, he has all these witty, witty banter that people love. You know, and other stuff that you see that's more detective work, which we could talk about that you also, um, he cuts out. But he, Houston's first thing is do, he tries to get a lead and he, and he wants to get George Raft, who's a huge star at the time, but George Raft, because he's kind of a, you know, well, he doesn't want to do, uh, something with a first time director. He, so he passes, even though, you know, he, he must know who John Houston is and he must know Walter Houston. So he passes. So, um, there's also something like he just didn't, uh, you know, there's a book that I, I read in preparation of this, yeah. and it's called just like it's called the Maltese Falcon. It's it, clearly it's like a ser- in a series of books. Um, so the title isn't really much of anything. It's just like Maltese Falcon, Houston, John Houston, director. And the book is basically edited by this guy, William Miller. <clears throat> but what's interesting, some of the most interesting things about the book is they have the guy went through and has like the memos that were being sent back and forth from people in the studio. So you can see like the communication that was happening. And, you know, some of it. Did has- you see them talking, toning down like the first day of shooting with Peter Laurie, we can get into, but there's a memo I read in the Peter Laurie bio where they're like, he has to tone down any kind of references to, to being, uh, I forget, they use this, I forget what they say being not a quote-unquote fairy, but he says something like, he can't come off like a pansy or something. You yeah, know? yeah. Well, there's yeah. there's definitely stuff about this from the from like the people who are worried about the censors about what you can eliminate. What, I mean, what needs to be eliminated? You know, you can't make it totally clear that she spends the night at his apartment. You can't have like yeah. you, said, you can't make even any- smoking excessive smoking. You're drinking, and they're like, we have to do that. It's like that's what they they do. It's it's furthering the plot. <laughs> but regarding but regarding George Raft, he just uh, he didn't want to work with a first time director. I guess yeah. he had in his contract that he didn't have to do remakes. Oh, yes, yes, that was it. And he used that clause because, and, like we just said, nothing's new in Hollywood. They've been doing remakes for since the beginning of time. Yeah. And he had that as a clause. And he had that as a clause. And that's how he got out of doing it. But he also, there's this, like, they have printed, like, let, parts of this letter where he writes to Jack Warner, which is like, you know, part of my contract says that I, I only do big pictures and I don't view this as a big picture. And it becomes like this running gag at the studio. And I think in Hollywood in general is that like most like three or four of Bogart's first like really breakout roles are all roles that George Raft had turned down first. Yeah, he passed on. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And you can't fault these guys because at the time, you know, it's a very young industry. So, you know, these guys want to make money and run. So, you know, he's like, I don't want to be. They were doing big budget Hollywood movies, you know, yeah. so you're right. So bo- that's how Bogart, yeah, that's, but, uh, that's pretty funny. So, you know, so Bogart was not the first choice for this. Raft was, and, you know, there was a long line of people. And if we're going to go uh, with a like a what-if game, of course, like some, Ooh, the- <laughs> some of these actors aren't as, I think, aren't some of them aren't as uh, known to uh, yeah. average moviegoers as as others, but people like Edward G. Robinson was on the list. Fred McMurray Who ends up playing 
Edward G ends up playing him in a radio adaptation we could talk about, yeah. uh, which is very interesting, an hour-long radio ap- adaptation. But yeah, so that's that'd be interesting. Fred, Fred Mc- McMurray, who Fred we McMurray know. is on the list, who later becomes Di- a Disney guy, but uh, is in Double My Indemnity. Two Dads, not My Two Dads, three, My Three Sons, yep. Uh, Frederick Marsh, Henry Fonda's on the list, uh, Paul Mooney's on the list. But uh, ultimately, Bogart ends up getting the part, and it's kind of really hard to imagine because now he's Bogart. You know, now he's Humphrey Bogart. He's Bogey. He's, you know, one of the great movie stars of all time. But he was, you know, a heavy, got killed in the eighth reel of a million movies before this. I mean, this is the first, this is his first, like, role of this type, a leading man that's that starts to the creation of the character of Humphrey Bogart. There's not so much a romantic aspect of it. That comes a couple years later with Casablanca. But this is the first film that kind of allows audiences to see the Humphrey Bogart character that he then becomes famous for. Blake is taking us to church right now. Preach it, Blake, because you're right. There was a 10-year period where Bogart is not He's just a, a character actor at Warner. Um, he's an interesting guy that was in World War One, and that's where he attributes where he got his he got shrapnel hit in the top of his lip, and that scarred him and gave him that unique speaking and the kind of lisp he has. But I feel like twenty years ago when we got out of college, there was a biography that actually tells the real reason why he has that. But he gets out of World War One and he, he comes to New York and he's a he's a stage manager, a theatrical stage manager for a little while. Then he gets into acting and he's big on Broadway and he starts doing things on Broadway, moves to Hollywood in 1930 and he's in just a bunch of regular movies. But then he gets... Uh, Leslie Howard, his co-star, who ends up being known for the movie that we're no longer supposed to talk about, the the Gone with the Wind. He's in that movie. Leslie Howard pushes for Bogart to be to reprise his le- his character in the Petrified Forest, which is another uh, Betty Davis vehicle with Leslie Howard. And on stage, Bogart played his character in the movie so good. Leslie Howard had the vouch for him at Warner. Warner lets him, and that's the breakout role, Petrified Forest for Bogart. He becomes on the map. He also does uh, Dead End, which is a fabulous movie, which he does, I think, on the stage as well, that he brings on to Hollywood, and that also is the first appearance of the Dead End kids. But for years, he's just playing side Bill. He's in the Roaring Twenties with James Cagney. He's in Angels with Dirty Faces with James Cagney. Uh, he's in Ama- The Amazing Dr. Clitterhouse with Edward G. Robinson, a fantastic movie. He's in that. Uh, he's in uh, King of the Underworld. He does The Oklahoma Kid, the only Western he's done. Uh, he does The Return of Dr. X, which is a sequel to a Lionel Atwell movie, and that's, I think, the only movie Bogey played a horror it was in a horror movie. Uh, they drive by night, High Sierra, and by the time he gets to this movie, this is the first time. So he's been on the 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 scene for a while. It just as a good character actor, usually a menacing, a heavy, like Blake said. But he gets this role, and this kind of carves him out. And like you said, it's weird watching the other interpretation, the the thirty one version, and watching um, what's his name in it, the uh, Cortez, I think his name was, uh, playing Sam Spade because it's kind of there. I like him, but then when you watch this, I'm like I like Bogart's portrayal best. You know this Sam Spade as the Sam Spade, yeah. uh, you know, and and that's that's this really defines him as a star and then like you said i think in after this he does a movie which is really near and dear to my heart called all through the night with all with all 
Peter Lorre also and with Conrad Veidt is in. Uh, and then he does a, a, couple, a bunch of movies after, but then in 42, uh, the same years all through the night, he does Casablanca. And that really throws him over the top, and it also re- reunites him with Peter Lorre and Sidney Greenstreet. He does a series of movies with Peter Lorre. He does, like, um, Dark, uh, he does Passage to Marseille. He does uh, Casablanca, Beat the Devil. He does a bunch with Peter Lorre. And then well, Peter Lorre and Sidney Greenstreet do a whole bunch of movies yeah. together themselves. Well, that's partially because of the success of this movie. That they, and they become friends. That they, they all like become that, like yeah, yeah. But partially why they end up pairing these guys together. I mean, he does you know some movies. All the three of them do a few movies together. Is because of the success of this movie. Uh, yeah, there's a movie that this movie was so big, and it's, they didn't really think of sequels that in the same way that they do now. I'm mean, say there obviously there were serials, but uh, the, the, this this movie was so. Uh, such a big movie that they decided that they wanted to pair the entire cast up to, together again. And Houston was going to do it. And so Houston wrote yeah. a script for a movie called the three called three strangers. And unfortunately it didn't get made until 1946. So it didn't yeah. come out like the following year, but it was gonna star Mary Astor, Bogard, Peter Lorre and green street. Uh, by the time 1946 rolls around, uh, Peter Lorre is a big enough star that he ends up playing the romantic lead instead of Bogart. <laughs> it's a great movie. I I own it. It's it's a fabulous movie. And is Mary? I think is Mary Astor in it too. She, she's or? not in it, but interestingly enough, and we, this could be a segue into more of the casting stuff. Geraldine Fitzgerald ends up playing the Mary Astor part, and she was the one who was originally thought of as playing as uh, Bridget O'Shaughnessy until Mary Astor got the part. But uh, Green Street's in there's it. There's a couple movies they do it. Yeah, they, there's a couple movies he, him, and Sydney Green Street do together. Uh, I think they do eight movies in like five years or six years, and um, uh, or maybe less time, maybe in the five year period. But there, I thought there's a woman that's in a couple of the same movies. She plays the romantic lead. It's kind of like how uh, Dorothy Lamore was in all the Road Two movies. Yeah. I felt like there was a girl. But they do, yeah, Three Strangers, The Verdict, which also Humphrey Bogart's in. They do The Conspirators, The Mask of Dismindros. De, uh, I'm probably saying that wrong, which is a fabulous movie. Uh, and ending up where Sidney Greenshoot retires in 1949. And then he ends up passing away at age 75 in 1953. There's also a half-hour version of this on, I think it's Lux Radio, uh, All you can get off probably YouTube, of the Maltese Falcon they do in 1943, two years later, which has Humphrey Bogart, Peter Lorre, Mary Astor, and Sidney Greenstreet all reprise their roles in this condensed half-hour version. Yeah. And you want to learn, have a, a lesson on writing, man... You know, figuring out what you need to keep in a half hour to keep it concise and keep it with the people to have them shine. It's brilliant. And then at the end of it, you hear like, you know, they're like, it's so good for it brings back so many memories of us filming, doing this again. You know, so yeah. uh, the casting two, of this movie, I, I think, th- is clutch. I think they did two different like half hour versions. One for as far yeah, as Yeah, with, with Bogart. Uh, yeah. But uh, continuing on the, the casting uh, aspect of it. Um, so the character of Bridget O'Shaughnessy, uh, some other part people that were thought of for that part were like Olivia de Havilland, uh, Rita Hayworth, like I said, Gerald, Geraldine Fitzgerald, uh, Ingrid Bergman, 
one that I thought was interesting and not a name that most people, uh, I think, know off the top of their head, but Joan Bennett, who was in Dark Shadows and then yeah. Suspiria. <laughs> she, yeah. was, she was thought of to play uh, this part. What I, One of the things that I thought – Having read this book of this book about the movie before we in preparation for us to watch the, the movie and then do this, so I haven't seen Maltese Falcon in at least a decade, maybe longer. Uh, so I'm reading this book all about the making of the movie and the themes of the movie, and one of the things that I found really interesting was like the movie that. I don't know how to say this without it sounding like on like a knock on the movie because I don't mean it that way. Which is that like the movie they're talking about in this book does not seem so much to be the movie that I'm that we watched. <laughs> like I think yeah. I think it, in, in I think things in retrospect maybe you know there's things that to me seem like a far leap to to get to that uh, thought process. I think some of it also has to be with like. You know, maybe they're talking about the way it was interpreted by the audience at the time, which is going to be very different than the way we interpret it today. And one of those and one of those things is like the sexuality, like the deviant sexuality of the Bridget O'Shaughnessy character, which doesn't come totally through when you watch the movie today for me. But they said that one of the interesting things, which would have played into it more in 1941, was that. Uh, Mary Astor herself, the woman who played the actress who played the part, was kind of uh, controversial and a little notorious uh, sexually at that point. So she was maybe bringing the audience was bringing baggage to the movie. She, what was? Do you know the details of what she was? Uh, a couple of things. She at age seventeen, she was in a movie called uh, Bo Brummel. In 1924 silent movie, which looks like, if you watch it, it looks like it's kind of the movie that Gene Kelly's making in Singing in the Rain. Rain. Like, I think, like, that's the movie they're parodying. Yeah. Uh, So she makes this this movie with John Barrymore, who then woos her, who's like 14. Well, John Barrymore was the the cock in the walk at the time. He was as big as... um, uh, uh, Rudolph Valentino. I mean, ba- Barrymore was like, uh, you know, the accomplished stage yeah, actor. He was a big star. He was, he was huge. It's like Douglas Fairbanks Jr. He was huge at the time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he was the lead of this movie. That's the joke in um, every people remember Casino. Well, you with the fucking pink robe like your fucking John Barrymore over there. <laughs> That's that joke reference. Uh, so he woos her, and so he, she has an affair with. At, at age, she's seventeen. She has an affair with the much older. Uh, John Barrymore. So it kind of, I think, starts there. But then... The grandfather or great-grandfather of Barry, uh, Drew. Yeah, Drew Barrymore. Should, you know, she has a line of, you know... The line of Barrymores. Yeah, Lionel Barrymore. There's a lot of Barrymores. Yeah. yeah. There's uh They should make a salad, Barrymores. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? Uh, but then later, sometime later, uh, she has an ex-husband and they're in a custody battle for their daughter. I think it's their daughter, a child. Maybe. I don't know. I think it's the daughter, but it might be a son, but she's in a A child. She's in custody battle with this guy. Who's a physician named uh, Dr. Franklin Thorpe. 
and I guess it's a pretty ugly divorce and a pretty ugly custody battle to try to sway the courts. Uh, Thorpe steals her, one of her diaries. Oh, for fuck's sake. And makes it public. And because it's stolen, it ends up not being able to be used in court. Yeah, it's not, it's, it's not it's inadm- inadmissible. Yeah, it's inadmissible as evidence. But he makes But it, I bet you it gets into the <laughs> it gets into all the gossip columns. It get made it gets made public and in the in the diary now she uh said that these passages that the diary existed and that it does talk about an affair that she had with playwright George S. Kaufman. But okay. she says that her ex-husband released these fraudulent entries into the diary that sh- that are like ex- sexually explicit. Oh, he steamed it up. Yeah, and he, apparently he removed passages that involved him. So, and, so basically, it's like he he released text messages. Now took himself out all the text messages, yeah. released all of what she said to and him, and then <laughs> yeah, know. and then but then out of context, know, added like sexts into it that according to her weren't there. I don't know what the truth is, but according to her, we can't ask her, but like you said, so we'll have to to go ask her. (laughs) So by the time when this movie comes out, like she's, you know, she's a bit of a, in a way to some, you know, more square audiences. She's like, um, she's like, what's her face? Uh, you know, uh, Betty, the great, great, not Jean. What's her name? Uh, you know, buckle your seatbelt, kid. You're you're on for a bumpy ride. Um, oh, what's her name? You know, she's really saucy pre-code, and then she May West. Oh, May you know, West, she's yeah. like the May West of the time. You know what I mean? Yeah. Where Jimmy Stewart and Carrie Grant got their start in those but movies. Like, yeah, you know, it's like. But I mean, she's sexual on screen, whereas Mary Astor is yeah. in the eyes of much audiences very sexual in real life, and so I think maybe that plays into the way that character is thought of now because when you watch it now there's like she, she's she's almost you could almost f- make her feel like she's a victim in it you well, know her portrayal yeah. you know and, it's, and you have to really watch and listen to it for to hear oh wait a minute she is a freaking you know yeah <laughs> you, know, you well, realize the full capacity of her bitchy her bitch oddity totally because they, the, the way like this book and other things talk about this movie and talk about that character which is like you know, the idea of like the Black Widow or the Femme Fatale becomes uh, in film noir in coming years becomes like a a, a convention of the genre. But um, the way they talk about her in this book is like you, they talk about her the way uh, Barbara Stanwyck is in Double Indemnity, which is like calculated. She uses her sexuality to control Fred McMurray, you know, like it's. Obviously, it's not too overt because they can't, but like the dialogue is much more innuendo than this. Whereas it's whereas, Raymond Chandler writing that shit, yeah. Whereas Bridget O'Shaughnessy, like she's manipul, she's trying to manipulate Sam Spade, but it's through like making him feel bad for her. Not it's, it's almost through not action. using her sexuality and his weakness as a as a man. <laughs> well, that's the problem is that they had to cut that out. They had to cut out like you said the implication that they sleep together. There's the scene where Wilmer um uh, my man Elijah Cook Jr. is outside watching the apartment when Peter Laurie leaves after our fun part with the confrontation with the cops. And she's like, what am I going to do? And and you have to really pay attention how much she changes. She's about to leave, she realizes he's outside, and then she lays back 
And she's like, well, what am I going to do? And, you know, he's like getting frustrated and he goes for it. But you don't really see that the implication is they sleep together the next morning, which is shown in the 1931 movie, but they had to cut out here. He leaves her in bed, goes out, steals her key, goes to her apartment and trashes her apartment looking for this thing. It's funny. He cuts the, takes a knife, cuts the pillows, all this stuff. It, and you see a lot of the detective work. You know, he takes like a, 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 a pencil and he sticks it in all the face cream to make sure nothing's hidden there. Those all, you know, what the detective does, checks like behind wall. And then he realizes the time, runs back. She wakes up in his, in his bed like, oh, where is he? And he's stepping through the door with some groceries like, oh, I just went out to get a paper and some groceries. And then later on in the book, which is really funny when she comes back, which is in the movie, she's like, my place has been destroyed and searched. He's like, has it? And it's because he did it, but he plays it off like it's one of them doing it, you know? But um, you realize through her omission, I guess, like it's her revelations are kind of like learned in this movie through the dialogue of people saying like Humphrey Bogart or people calling her bluff, calling her a liar saying, you didn't mean that. And she's like, no, I didn't. And then you start to realize like everything she's saying, she's like, yeah, that was a lie. You're right. Uh, you know, so it's, it, 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 it would be interesting if it was played a different way and it was done a little more like a, like real sex pot, like, you know, literally like pre-code stuff's hanging out almost, you know, because she kind of, you're like, right. She's crying a lot. She's like, Oh my God, you know, you gotta feel bad for me. And, uh, I think it, it, it was certainly when I was a kid, it was lost upon me, her, the implications of her being just as conniving. And maybe that's because of, you know, I'm not thinking about my sexuality. You know, I'm not thinking about the boner. It's what did we call that last week. It's uh BC or B B pre boner, <laughs> B, whatever it was, you know? Uh, so, you know, I'm, I'm focusing my, well, I didn't realize the homosexual, overtone or that are that are, are throughout Peter Laurie's performance, which we can get to in a second, you know? So it's like, so yeah. So I didn't know. It's interesting that you bring that to the table, that she's this sex pot that's going to be in there. Then you're putting Humphrey Bogart in there. Who's this rising star. Who's, you know, really gritty, uh, walks the, like a Cagney walks the walk, talks the talk. Edward G. Robinson at the time who, who became famous playing little, uh, little Rico or little Caesar was a Johnny Rico. Um, he was huge, but these guys like like Cagney and, and Edward G, they were getting typecast, and that used to piss them off. Like, we don't want to just do gangster movies. I mean, like, uh, Edward G. Robinson knew, like, multiple languages, was a huge, huge artificial like Vincent Price was, and they became part of that scandal in the late 50s of the game show scandal because they had Vincent Price and Edward G on a game show to try to outwit trivia each other, but it became a draw how good they were. And then when it came out, all those game shows that were rigged, they had to come in and testify. And they were like, well, the game show just told us what to say because that's how we thought it worked. It wasn't their fault. They were just like the game show gave them, this is how it's going to end up, you know, and that was part. But my point is here is Edward G., he was another, he was a genius, very smart. So that would have been a good role here for him, like the amazing Dr. Clitterhouse I brought up before the uh, Humphrey Bogart movie. That's a movie where he's a, he's a doc, a very nice loving doctor who might be a little crazy, a little eccentric, but he's trying to figure out the psychosis of the criminal. So he just shows up. It's one of these fun movies. He just shows up at a gangster's pad. He's like, I'm doing a book on a the-, you know, and I want to follow you guys around when you do capers because I want to study it. And you know, they're like, what? And then, you know, it's very good. But my point is you see them trying to like, uh, diversify themselves and be different things, you know? And then you got to remember in like 38 or 39, because of public backlash, Warner, uh, on their own, they, 
decide to stop making the gangster movie because of you know it, it, they people thought it was promoting violence with the Hays Code and like look you know this is almost uh, what do you call that when they um, you're uh, glorifying you know that so the gangster movie kind of stops in the late 30s and so this is another way of doing the gangster movie without doing the gangster movie do you see what I mean Blake you do this but you don't really do that you know yeah well you know that I don't want to backpedal too much but talking about the character of Sam Spade and we talked about him being a bit of a, you know, maybe the prototype of a, of a anti-hero character. And we're talking about casting right now. And, but to go back to like the casting of Bogard, I think is the most important, almost the most important thing of the whole movie, because, uh, you know, one of the reasons why I don't watch a lot of, gangster type material anymore is because I just like, I get bothered by this idea of like glorifying bad people. <laughs> like it's just something that, that bothers me now. And what's interesting about Sam Spade in the, in this movie and, and, and probably in the, even more so in the story is that like, he's not a good dude. I mean, he's, he's, yeah. ha- he's having an affair with his partner's wife, his partner. It, has, it wants to have an affair with, you know, Bridget O'Shaughnessy. Uh, but, yeah. And, you know, and he's, and he doesn't like his partner really either. Yeah. He's very conflicted. He's you know, very, and he's, that's what I want to get into for his all, character. For all intents and purposes, he's, you know, seems a bit corrupt. I mean, there's a line at the end of the movie that kind of indicates that. I mean, you're saying like he's got a code and all that, but he's like not the best guy. But no, not at all. But there's something. But that's the example of the flawed hero we're starting to see. Yeah, yeah. But there's something about the way Bogart plays him that makes him likable. Like, Bogart had a way of being an asshole, uh, being tough, but then, like, the puppy dog eyes. And then, like, you're like, yeah. oh, and you kind of feel for him and you kind of empathize him. Empathize well, you're for right. Him. The, you need that because since we're taking right out of Hammett's writing. When you read the book, I reread the book for the podcast. I'd read it uh, 20-some years ago when I first got into all this. You realize Sam Spade's character does these sudden bursts of anger or or the, the confliction that's present only in his dialogue. So you don't have any – that's what I mean about – and I don't have fancy words to describe this, but you don't have the inner – mind of he was conflicted he didn't know what to do maybe but he you know you have to just get all the implication through dialogue and and the the inference there and you know he's not a good man he does questionable things he and since we're here uh i feel like just watching that perry mason series on hbo which i really really liked um i feel like sam spade's character was probably a world war one vet and he probably came back really fucked up from the war and He's kind of almost like a sociopath, which you need to be in that line of work, which is the continental op, that the prototype of being the best person you can be is being able to detach yourself like homicide detectives from that world, you know, and you see that in this role where he doesn't care about people. He doesn't the best, the, the hardest thing and that what you learn, I guess that's something that is stressed in the Hammett characters in this world, uh, in the arcs is that, uh, if you take sides and you let say your little head think for you, uh, aside from your big head, then you're going to get burned. You know, if you fall for the girl or if you fall for the, the what's on the table, you know, you, you, you're gonna, 
get played or you become part of the so it's this huge sub sub subtext that we, we don't need to get into now but of the story arc of the hard-boiled hero because you get into the 50s and you get guys like mickey spillane writing or um uh what's his face who wrote the harlem cycle with coffin and gravedigger jones where you get these characters who they have a moral code they may be corrupt but they're ethical they have that one saving grace. Like he says at the end of the movie, hey, look, I'm not a good guy, but that was my partner. I, ha- I have to, if I can't be true to myself, you know, and that's something else, uh, you know, I, if I can't be true to myself, then I can't, what am, why am I a detective? Why, you know, then I'm completely corrupt. I'm not, you know, at the end of uh, I, the jury, which is a Mickey Spillane thing, he ends up, I think it's, he kills the, the spoiler alert. I think it, he shoots the girl for the whole uh, story he's been having, you know, it's the Bridget O'Shaughnessy character. But it's this idea that, you know, as bad as you are, you do still have that principle, that kind of a thing. And that's really, really fascinating, especially with Sam Spade's character, because Sam Spade, near the end of it, and that's emphasized in the book, he's like, I won't be the fucking sap. I won't be your sap. You, all these other people, and that's what I realized in this viewing. If you watch Humphrey Bogart, he almost does fall for her more than he wants to. And then when he, the realizations of her unraveling and her character, when they're sitting with Sidney Greenstreet and he says, uh, we learned that Floyd Thursby was just another girl, that guy that she was leading on. You watch Humphrey Bogart, look at her and he even sits back. He leans back away from the conversation because he's detaching himself. He's like, oh, she's not like fucking, she is like every fucking other girl I've met who's backstabbed me or whatever. So that's, that's a big thing at the end of the movie where he's like, yeah, I'm going to have a couple bad nights, but I'll get over it, you know? Yeah. And he realizes you can't be, I mean, we've all been there. I think boy, girl, where you fall for somebody. And then if that person dumps you, say for whatever, you may go back to them and you may get beat up or whatever. You know, you really end up in, in hindsight, like, ah, Jesus, I, you know, I was, I was an idiot back then. Like he doesn't want to do that, you know, and that I would think the implication would be there that he was probably burned in the past, maybe by the, by the, the old flame. Yeah. Well, that, so I find that all fascinating. Yeah. I know? think that exchange that you're talking about is the single most revealing mm. thing about, the, about his psyche, about his, yeah. that character is like, he's like, yeah. I, I may love you, but I won't be made the fool for you. You know, whatever, yeah. however he and puts he, it. You know, like, yeah, I won't be your sap. Yeah, and the, like that's like, and that's such a the way he delivers it in that moment. He's like holding her, like he, like it's really, uh, it's my favorite part of the whole movie is that exchange because of like the, what it finally reveals about him. But it's like you know he, it's just he does such a great job, and it's the kind of there are some actors where you say like okay, you know like. John Wayne's John Wayne in every movie, or Harrison Ford's Harrison Ford in every movie, Bogart, Bogart in every movie. But maybe that's so. I mean, Cary Grant's Cary Grant in every movie. Maybe, but like when the right person is cast in the right part, when that like marriage of things happens, it's it's just it's magic, man. It's just it's, well, he can transcend. It's, you know, because you're right, he is a Bogart in every movie. But in Casablanca, the same thing. Yeah. He transcends but it and he becomes that. About yeah. the way the kismet that is involved with yeah. certain roles and certain actors. Like, you know, and it's like he, this is the only, he's just the only time he plays Spade, right? But yet, yeah. his portrayal of this becomes the archetype of what we imagine the hard boiled detective is. 
and he ends up yeah, playing. Yeah, he does this. He does other parts like this. Yeah, he does Philip Marlowe. He plays uh, in The Big Sleep Raymond Chandler's work because by the time his archetype of Sam Spade hits, then with, um, what's his face? What's his name in Casablanca? I forget Rick. his name. Rick, yeah, Rick. And then uh, when when film noir sets in and it becomes a thing in like 46, he does The Big Sleep, which is the, you know, by that time, Raymond Chandler is 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 very prolific in doing some really, really, really good things. Um, and he plays uh, Philip Marlowe. And Philip Marlowe is the other archetype character of the hard-boiled detective. You know, people know that name. That's the thing. And I think it's a, a credit to, to Bogey's character as I think about it because I brought up that amazing Dr. Clitterhouse in that movie. He's the heavy in the gang that doesn't like Edward G. Robinson coming in and asking him about their business. And he's, through the whole movie, he's a menace. It's like, wow, you know, you don't know. He's a loose cannon. He could go crazy and kill everybody. In Angels with Dirty Faces... Another example, he is the lawyer who's the double crosser who I that's the reason I just made the analogy where I feel like it is it like it was an epiphany. It's a re, that is Carlito's way is a remake of that yeah. because he is the Sean Penn double shysting lawyer who you're like, "Oh, he's an asshole in this." And to comment about you, you were saying gangster movies, you might because of how you're feeling now about um, you know, your you you your progression of uh which I agree with you the glorification having issues with that now and movies of the past say 30 or 40 years that happening you might enjoy going back and watching if you haven't seen a lot of the the warner brother of that era that genre because since the code is in place like public enemy and like these other movies angel dirty faces or roaring 20s you they have the arch so that it's not you know it's the glorification is balanced out with by the end of it, you know, cr- not crime doesn't pay. That's a bad kind of sure. example to say. But you really like that. Like Angels Dirty Faces, there's such a depth in Cagney's role because he's getting out of prison. His name is Carlito Bergante. No, he's not his name. Not Carlito <laughs> Bergante. His, um, <laughs> I, forget it. I forget what his name is. Uh, but he is trying to get out, get out of it, but the, the mob keeps pulling him back in because he goes in halves with the club. <laughs> it's very funny. You know, it's like now I'm thinking about all the more going on, and his best friend is a priest. You know, Pat O'Brien, who we just brought up in the um, uh, Darby O'Gill and the Little People. Uh, but it's just like Cag- Cagney's another guy who you just think of like, you know, or Ed- and Edward G. Robinson, these three, where they're just on the face of it, he's a, just a gangster. But then when you watch, Cagney was able to be a Broadway guy. He did these musicals where he's sure. amazing doing like tap dancing and stuff. And there's a range there where he plays uh, Cohen and uh, uh, Yankee Doodle Dandy, where he plays Lon Chaney Sr. in The Man with a Thousand Faces. Yeah, yeah. So these guys have this versatility where they're just Cagney or Edward G. in every movie, but there is a nuance there where they're really, really good. You know, when they're like, like you know, Walter Keyes in, in Dublin Indemnity. You know, Edward G. is amazing, you know? Sure, and yeah. When Edward G. does the radio play version of this uh, Maltese Falcon, which is an hour long, uh, you get the idea him playing Sam Spade is kind of like um, him playing it as a Walter Keys. It's kind of that kind of inflection. And it's interesting. They do it in front of a live audience. And at the end of it, you hear the live audience. You know, when we get to the end of the movie and Sam Spade says, we need a fall guy. Let's give him Wilmer. Uh, the audience laughs at that. And that's the first time you hear the audience laugh. And then whoever the actor is uh, in that theater troupe playing Wilmer says something, the audience laughs again, and then when they knock Wilmer out, the struggle, 
uh, Spade says a joke, the audience laughs again. And that's really like, that's telling. It's like, oh, wow. The audience react because I didn't know it was a live audience until you hear them laugh at that part. Yeah. You're like, that's really interesting. Like, he's really stretching his legs for the first time, and he's Edward G's getting comfortable in the Sam Spade role. You know? So, anyway, I'm sorry. We went off on that tangent. But it's just how good Bogart is in this movie. You're right. He's able to express so much of that character, and you need that to show, you know. uh, And my last point uh, the reason I thought he was a World War One vet is because nothing frightens him. He goes up against these guys, or when you know his partner's killed, he doesn't need to go down and yeah. look. Or I love the scene when he gets back and he's sitting there rolling a cigarette, looking at his partner's desk, and he's looking at the um, the writing on the wall. And you could tell he's like, "I don't need this stuff." It's like you know when you you'd hear the stories in war where the more uh, seasoned guys wouldn't become friends with the new recruits coming in because they didn't want to get attached because if those guys got killed, it was more horrible for them. So, you know, they don't want to be reminded. So that's the idea I got when he was looking at the desk. He's like, by the way, you know, uh, uh, what I forget what he says to her, Angel, get rid of that and repaint the wall because he doesn't want to be reminded about, you know, his, his partner and his partner's death. He just wants to lock it away and put it in the back of his head. Yeah. But it's also, you know, it's another instance for me as a viewer of what I was talking about. Like, it's hard to imagine what audiences at the time thought, because, like, I'm also bringing the baggage of the fact that, like, Casablanca is, like, one of my top five favorite movies of all time. So I'm bringing, like, that. Yeah. And also, like, having such fond memories of watching, like, the African Queen with my mom, like, growing up a Bogart fan. But like you could, I could totally see like, you know, Rick is if like Sam Spade got out of the got out of the business of being a detective, <laughs> and it's ran like into he went, like it's it, like his he, he went with them. It's like you know, at the end of the movie, if he had gone with them, yeah, on the trip for the Falcon, maybe he, he settled in Casablanca, Morocco, and he, and he, opened and, he the bar. and like while in France, he meets Ingrid Bergman, and then he gets his heart broken again. Yeah, and, then, and that's and you then, see, like, yeah, you're right. There's an arc <laughs> of the character. You could see it's almost. What do you get that? You get that in. Uh, I can't cite it off cold, but there's ideas in people's careers where you're like Eastwood's character. You know, yeah. it's like the man with no name in the spaghetti westerns, and then when you get to him being William Money in Unforgiven, people can make the the attenuation. Oh, it's the same character, or you know, him Josie Wales. You know, so like you're saying, yeah, you're right. You could see that in five years, him being trying to stay out of the war, so he's living in Casablanca, owns a place, Rick's, but also and, just you know, like run away with- from to run away from a broken heart, you know, <laughs> like, like yeah. you're saying like all this stuff. And, and so like, I just think like, he's perfect. He's so perfect in this movie. She's good. It's like I said, it's a weird character getting on, yeah. mo- you know, Joel Cairo, Peter Lord, Dion and I have, you Jesus. know, an undying love for Peter Lord. And apparently he was the first choice uh, for that character, but someone else that they uh, thought of for that character was Ilya Kazan. Who they also? Yeah, I see. I was going to say who they also no considered for the Wilmer part, also. Well, it's interesting. I absolutely love the Peter Lorre uh, so much that, that the Peter Lorre that I read his biography. I read the Peter Lorre biography, and I recommend it to anybody who has the time. It's pretty big. It's called "The Lost One: A Life of Peter Lorre," and in it, he talks about how we got to look at Peter Lorre's career again. Is that he makes a huge hit as uh, an M. Fritz Lang, which we talk about, we go into his history in we did our Mad Love podcast. But then he becomes a huge star in Europe because of M. He, because of what's going on with the war, he moves to Paris and he establishes himself in the early 30s 
or in the mid early to mid thirties in Paris. He's plucked out of that by Alfred Hitchcock, who gives him a, a role in The Man Who Knew Too Much, which is then remade again in 15 years with, again. And at that time, Peter Lorre learns his lines phonetically because he can't even speak English yet. He's so good in that movie, he becomes an international star. So he's able to, because of that movie, move to the States when there's that mass migration of the European, Western, German actors we talk about again in Mad Love when they come to Hollywood. He's now stuck in Hollywood. And as versatile as he is, he's stuck. He gets a contract with Warner. Uh, I think that's, I haven't read the book in some years, but he's stuck there again. And Warner is not really interested in, in trying to help him be in any way diverse. He makes a bunch of movies. And at the same time, he's doing other stuff. He's Mr. Moto. You know, we talk about the gentleman detective from a little while ago. You had Charlie Chan going. You have Mr. Moto going. He makes eight films from 1937 to 1939 playing the Japanese detective, Mr. Moto, who is a fabulous character to try to dissect because every movie you can't figure out what's going on. If he's like a he's a cold hearted killer or then if he's more of a Charlie Chan like philosophical guy, it's really interesting. But that ends in 39 because when the war's on, people realize he's having issues with his uh, he had uh, Peter Lorre had an addiction to, to morphine because of an accident he had. And that was ended up being the problems with his weight gain and fluctuation over the years. But also, since the war is starting to happen, they, they don't really want to keep doing pro-Japanese movies because of World War II. So they stopped Mr. Moto, and he never re- rekindles that. But in the, uh, in the biography, it says that they submitted 24 names for Joel Cairo of actors at the time. Conrad Veidt's on that list. Sam Jaffe. Uh, Kazan's on that list. And... His name was 15th on the list for Wilbur, Wilmer, and he's below Elijah Cook Jr., who ends up getting the role as Wilmer. Um, Houston saved Laurie in Hollywood now, plucking him out of obscurity uh, a second time in his career because at that time he was almost being relegated to B Pictures. And uh, Monogram Pictures, which was a kind of a B-level picture house at the time, was offering him a role as a zombie master in the 1941 movie, which is actually pretty good, called The King of the Zombies. And Houston knew him from M. So Houston's like he wanted him. And um, so Houston says, quote, he had an international air about him. You never knew quite where he was from, although one did, of course. He had the combination of braininess, real innocence, and sophistication. You see that on screen always. He's always doing two things at the same time, thinking one thing and saying something else. So Houston uh, goes to bat for him. He gets the role, two grand a week, minimum of five weeks guaranteeing with a featured billing. So Peter Lorre's pick there, and, and, he, and he is freaking amazing. You look at, they kind of did something with his hair. Where they kind of like permed it a little bit, like yeah. it's frizzy. They gave him a little darker skin, and on his passport it says he's from Greece, and he's a he's a traveler. That's his occupation. It says on the passport. But there is an issue in the book that shows up in the thirty one movie where uh, the inference is that he's a homosexual, and uh, also you kind of get that vibe from uh, Guzman, Sidney Greenstreet's character, right? And you also get it from Wilmer. And at the end of the book, when they knock Wilmer out and they put him on the couch, Cairo is sitting next to Wilmer on the couch, rubbing his temples and whispering to him. And then at one point he says that, it, I think uh, Humphrey Bo- or Sam Spade calls him queer 
or says like, you know, we got to get rid of your boyfriend or something like that. So there's an implication there that, that the two of them or even the three of them are homosexual, but they couldn't put that in. That was one of the big things that the censors, when they were trying to green light this with the department, they said, no, we couldn't have this explicit sex, which we'll talk about a little bit later. There's a scene near the end that they had to cut out between Astor and Bogart. But they said, we don't want any, any kind of homosexual referencing overtones so but what laurie does which is amazing is that they do him kind of such a way and he has this outfit and stuff like that they give him that cane and the cane becomes very phallic and it's also how the the cinematographer shoots the stuff everything in it is very fetish ish where the the, the angles they're sneaking up on and you see in laurie he's got the glove and he's very like he i i just can't explain how amazing laurie is and the subtlety uh, in the role of how he's, you know, he does show that childhood kind of like, you know, innocence or the, uh, the sophistic, you know, the, 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 uh, what do you call that? Like almost the, 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 uh, aristocratic, aristocratic, but the, uh, I can't think of what I'm, you know, like, uh, he's very like, uh, uh, what do you call that when someone gets everything they want? You know, when you grow up, you're uh, spoiled or yeah. there's another I mean, word. I guess I would just say yeah. spoiled. So you kind of see that in his air, you know, his performance and how he just acts and how he's kind of like, you know, he has tamper tantrums and, you know, it's just, I think he's, he's absolutely amazing in this role. What do you think? Oh yeah. I mean, I agree. I mean, you know, you know, we both love Lori. I mean, (laughs) yeah. And I think this is the slenders he gets in this area. This is when he's very thin these years. He had everything under control. Casablanca, he's very thin. And yeah, I mean, his part is very small, but in, but, uh, iconic in Casablanca. He's not in much of the movie at all, but there was another pairing of Bogart, Green Street, and Laurie together for Casablanca. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, look, there are just some... There are some actors that are just interesting to watch. Their choices are interesting. They're visually interesting. Uh, you know, he's always got some business... With his hands, he's always doing whether it's like you, you were kind of indicating like being kind of phallic with his cane, or you know, it's just he's always doing something and, he, and he's stealing he, stuff. He's like stealing scenes, like how he's the subtlety of how he's acting or he's, how he. I mean, and to think that he only, you know, he wasn't he wasn't proficient in English ten years before. Yeah, and he's at the point now where you know we talk about that in in Mad Love where he was trying really hard to get rid of his accent, something that you know people like. Bella Lugosi could never, even Arnold Schwarzenegger could never really get rid of it. But he looked at it because of World War II. He wanted more work, which people resented from the German community were getting mad at him for doing that. But it's amazing just how he has the way with how he says the lines and the inference and stuff. He's he's absolutely fabulous. Yeah. I mean, this cast, I mean, the triad of the... The triangle of the three. That's why it's it's like it's all they all become archetypes. They all become. I mean, I've seen Ren and Stimpy in the comic book. They they make fun of this Joe Cairo, and you know, you look at like you know like like Ren being a little Peter Laurie and Stimpy being like Larry Fine. It's like you know, it's like it's everywhere in our culture. You yeah. know, well, it's also like interesting because when you think of like character actors, like these people that play, but like character actors back then, guys like Green Street, just. You know, he was the same in every movie, but he's so charming, yeah. you know, and he's so great. I mean, the character of uh, Gutman, uh, the fat man, um, I mean, I, how's his 
having read the book again, how does like how does his portrayal of that character come across between the you know the on page and the way he delivers it? Because I can't imagine that it was the it was written with a guy like him in mind to play it. Uh, I think it, it comes off very true. The 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 earlier gentleman that they have in the thirty one version, uh, I didn't think was uh, as good as Green Street's performance. And then when we have the um, the Edward G. Robinson radio play, they had somebody else play G- Gutman in that too. But and, but but, uh, he plays, but in the in that version of the radio play, like the guy who's playing Cairo sounds like he's just kind of doing it. A, a Peter Laurie impression in a way. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, that, exactly. The He's guy that plays like, Gutman yeah. is just kind of doing Green Street. Yeah, Green Street is so... Yeah, he's just got such a... It's like it's, it's he's almost like uh, he's I wouldn't say he's overacting, but he's he's got such a character about him that he becomes you can't I can't look at it and think of anybody else playing it, yeah. you know. And he's so good. And as Blake said, this is his debut. He made his stage debut in 1902. This is his movie debut in 1941, and he's at 62 years old at the time. And he ends up doing uh, 24 films in his whole career, and he ends up battling Bright's disease and diabetes, and he passes away in yeah. 1953. But, I mean, just for that short period of time, for, for what, 12 years or, uh, or or however long, eight years or so, it's amazing to think of, you know, he's in some fabulous movies. I mean, you know, he's in Across the Pacific with also with, which is a Bogart movie, maybe sure. Peter Lorre as well, yeah, I think so. if I remember correctly. Casablanca, he's in the pas- Passage to Marseille, which I think is also a Peter Lorre movie with, um, uh, what's his name, uh, Bogey. And also he uh, is in Christmas in Connecticut with Barbara yeah. Stanwyck. He's the newspaper editor, and he's fabulous in that. So that kind of breaks the mold of him just being like a heavy uh, I don't mean literally, but I meant like just the the actual the mo- like a big boss sleazy guy. Where at the same time he could be like a news editor. Yeah, well, that's the thing you know? is like he does play these bad guys, but he's not that kind of person. And I think that's what makes his portrayal of the bad guy in movies uh, interesting because it's like in a way he is the villain of this movie for all intents and purposes. Yeah. But he's also in a way like the most likable. Out of all of them. <laughs> and it's yeah. because of his, it's because of the quality that he brings to it. It's just like I was saying with Bogart. It's just like there's a perfect marriage of character and actor. And, and Green Street brings, you know, he seems like even though he look, he's an awful dude, it seems like I would like to hang out with that dude. Like he's just, Yeah, he, I mean, he's, there's a sophistication there. You know, it's the same thing with, I think, brings Joel Cairo's character to, to, to the fat man. There's a sophistication. There's alertness. You know, he's probably a scholar or, or or a professor of some. He's almost like an Indiana Jones, like you know, uh, explorer or, or that kind of a thing. And he's and he's he's he must be funding himself. I don't think there's any implication that he's working yeah. for another person. So he's well off to be able to be throwing this money out and traveling the world. You know, back in the time when it took like however how long for like a steamer or a transatlantic boat to, to give make you passage. So it's, yeah, it's really fascinating his character, how he plays it. And it's funny because when you listen to the half hour stage play uh, that's on the radio with all of them playing it, he accentuates, uh, good evening, sir. <laughs> he accentuates, you know, the, the radio, he knows what he's doing at that point. Yeah, yeah. So people are laughing at him. He's almost, well, he's probably more he's in his element. Because he, yeah, he was exactly. like, he was like a, 
you know, he was he was a stage actor. I guess he had a little bit of reputation in, of like comedic parts. Apparently, Houston yeah. saw him in a play at the Biltmore Theater in L.A. And it might have yeah. been uh, uh, it might have been the play "There Shall Be No Night," which he did for a long time. But he Houston yeah. saw him and then talked him into convinced him to do the movie because I guess he had decided that he was never going to do a movie. And then Houston uh, talked him into doing. Uh, Maltese Falcon. Warner Brothers signed him for a thousand dollars a week, uh, with a guarantee of four weeks, and that's just started a, a film career. That's you know for a guy. And he, and he was go. I'm sorry. I was like, for a guy who was like sixty one, sixty two, ultimately only made twenty four films. Granted, in a pretty short amount of time, like his impact on cinema, especially for like me. And you and like even like talking about movies with my dad is like huge. Like he yeah. was also like the kind of the initial uh, inspiration for Jabba the Hutt. George Lucas saw him, saw Jabba the Hutt as like this, the Sydney Greenstreet character of, yeah. of Star Wars and early uh, yeah. and even early character maquettes. That the the artists were making, there was one maquette that you can see, like on the documentaries of me. Like he has a fez on, just like he does at Casablanca. That that job of the yeah, hut is wearing, yeah. <laughs> wearing a fez. So like this guy made this huge impact on cinema in such a short amount of time and so late in his career. You think of guys like Danny Aiello, or I think it's Dennis Farina, who were cops. They put their twenty in, and then they had segue, and they make Randy Jurgis, and they become stars. He was a guy, like you said, that. Didn't start. It's just insane that that late in life he he has this amazing career. He does a lot on radio too. I think he becomes the the narrow wolf on radio. I have a couple of those radio shows where he's really, really, really good. And it's just I, you know, him in this, and then him in 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 Casablanca, fabulous, fabulous. And then he goes on to do eight other movies with um, uh, Laurie. And I recommend everybody to go see them because they're great together because they all became friends. And there's these crazy things like on set, you know, they would just do, they would, you know, they would go drink afterwards or they hang out and they party. They become really close. Bogart and, um, and Lori became really close and Lori and Green Street became really close. And you could kind of see some of that affinity going on. And, you know, uh, it's just you know it's it's lightning in a bottle with the with the with the, the, the these guys and their performances uh, and then add in uh, uh, Elijah Cook Jr. who I absolutely love yeah. who um, was in every time uh, plays Wilmer and ever in the sixties yeah 70s you know and people 80s. yeah people remember going on he's in the the killing the, the the really really good Stanley Kubrick that kind of they say. That kind of ends film noir around 56. Uh, he's in that. He's in The House on Haunted Hill, the Vince, original Vincent Price movie. He's in a slew of 70s yeah. movies, 60s movies. He's in a lot of television. He's yeah. in Rosemary's Baby. He he's shows in an episode. Hotel, the, he's in an episode of Star Trek. He's on an episode of Starsky and Hutch. He's in the Night, Night Stalker, Stalker television the, movie. The pilot, I think. He might be in the movie, the pilot movie. He's in the pilot he's movie. He's in Tom yeah. Horn. Yeah, uh, I don't see what he does. He's in Steve McQueen's second to last movie, Tom Horner. I don't know what he does into the 80s. But he has that look, well, he's and in he's television. so recognizable. He, his last part you know, was he, in the late 80s. He was a recurring character on Magnum P.I. That was like 88, oh, yes. 89. Yeah, yeah. And then, he dies in like, and then he dies in like 1990 at like the age of like 90-something, like 92 or something. Yeah, like well, because he, he fills a role. It's kind of like he becomes the 
America's version of a Peter Lorre, where he he's up for that part. And that's why it's interesting. You see Dwight Fry, who had he dies of a heart attack in like thirty eight, thirty nine. Who we said he was he's Fritz in Frankenstein, the the Igor character, and he's in he's Renfield in the original Dracula. He had the same th- these thin guys who have a particular look and. I love Wilmer's character. Wilmer in the in the movie is such a great in the in the third, 1931 movie. They give him kind of that hat, they, you know, like the news the newsboy's hat with the thing on top. They give him that kind of a look because at the time that's what gangsters were kind of wearing. So you see, he's kind of trouble because he's a quote unquote gunman. So you have now in this movie you have Wilmer. Uh, Elijah Cook Jr. and it's he's in the book you could tell he's a psychopath he's a he's one of these guys these kids who probably you know he could have killed his parents you know in the depression whatever went rob banks or was part of like a pretty boy floyd or 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 the clyde barrow gang you know robin banks and he has this short fuse he's really young they give him these great they give him two colt 1911 45s that are huge in his hands that are really big and um the parts he has with with bogart they make a i mean dashiell hammett's writing so good that he talks about when they confront him Wilmer never makes eye contact. He's one of the people you ever meet in life where they just stare at you. He stares at your center of your chest or he looks at your shoulder. So when he's having these intense conversations, he doesn't make eye contact. But he's like, you know, you could tell he's ready to explode at any point, but he's kept on a leash by um, by Sidney Greenstreet's character. But he's young, so he's inexperienced. So, you know, if he gets the age that... Uh, he almost becomes like you see that in he is uh, Benny Bronco from the Bronx. You know what I mean? He he's that character that in twenty years he'll he'll be the guy that's gonna kill. You know if he's not killed first. You know and and then that's where also maybe because of his naivete, there's a reason he gets together. You know who knows what's going on, but there's the implication that Joe Cairo and them are him are hanging out. Yeah. So it's really fascinating. I mean it's it's to the point where the the. The book I have coming out, I have a Sidney Greenstreet character. I have a Peter Lorre character. I have a Elijah Cook Jr. character in it. I have a Barton McLean character who is the lead cop in this movie. Barton McLean, I love. He has that. He's the lieutenant. And I think he's great in this, the Lieutenant Dundee, because how also they shoot the movie. You really get the setup that Dundee is Sam Spade's almost uh, foil. You know, he's the other side of what Sam Spade would have been if he stayed a cop. He's very straightforward to Sam. He's like, I'm sorry your partner died. He's like, I don't know. I'd probably do it too if you kill, if you get vengeance. The setup, we haven't got into even what the movie's about. Yeah. Uh, we, we think people should know. But he says <laughs> to him, like, I'm going to give you a straight, what does he say? I'm going to give you a straight, yeah. uh, you know, thing. And, and then even, you know, how he's talking to him when they bust into the apartment and how he's throwing, like, you could tell Sam's getting some heat off of him because he's the lieutenant. Sam knows that this guy knows what he's talking about. And you get the younger Ward Bond, who I love Ward Bond. We bring up, again, a lot. He's John Wayne's best friend. He's in It's a Wonderful Life. He's in Wagon Train. We brought him up. Uh, Famous, very, very famous character actor in all these movies in the 40s and 50s, uh, film noirs and westerns in particular, and a lot of John Wayne movies because he was friends with John Ford, John Wayne, all those guys hung out together. I think they played football together at USC. Yeah, and they had this really weird rivalry, and they became friends. And he got John Wayne helped them get into movies, and they were like this, you know, they had like this rough and tumble relationship. And then sadly, uh, Ward Bond ended up having a heart attack and dying in the shower one morning when he was getting ready to go shoot Wagon Train. So it was really sad. Supposedly, the story is like when the 
the, the casket was being lowered. John Wayne was really crying, and the guy, I forget who was next to him, but he, like, punched him in the shoulder. He's like, now you're going to be my best friend because my best friend just died. You know, it's sad, but I love Ward Bond, yeah. and I forget he's in the movie. I completely yeah. forgot until this viewing. I knew Barton McLean was in this because of how he talks, and he became a, a, um, a Warner Brother. Uh, character actor that did a lot of this in the, at the time, I completely forgot Ward Bond is Pole House, the other detective in it. So this whole cast is fucking awesome. Everybody. Yeah. I mean, you know? one, thi- one thing um, I will say about the Wilmer character is that the I, I you know I don't know how he's portrayed in the book, but uh, there's like an innocence that Cook brings to it, and it's part, and I think it's part of that uh, inexperience. Um, but it's like. And then when he explodes at the end, because he's just like Spade is just like jabbing him the whole time, like waiting yeah. for him to they're trying to push him to the edge. Don't uh, ride me. Yeah. And like, I just love. And then it's like, he's got the tears in his eyes. Like he's just brought. Oh, I know. You see is he's he's so mad. You could see two tears coming out of his eyes. The part I mean, Elijah Cook is is amazing because of his. That's the thing about him. He's he has that that boy look yeah. he has those eyes and even going on into his latter career it was those eyes that he had that look like oh my god like he he was a really good eye actor and that scene when he, spade starts giving him guff when he's trailing him in the hotel lobby and then of course spade knows everybody so spade spade brings a house detective over and that's all in the book where he's like what do you got two big gunmen sitting here when elijah cook brings his paper down and his eyes are wide because Elijah Cook realizes that Spade's diamond him out. It's almost like uh, a kid getting caught by the teacher, like another kid saying, this kid doesn't have a hall pass. And he's like, you know, I love that part. Like, Elijah Cook is so good just, you know, giving, even just with his expressions, how he's feeling, you know. Yeah. It's fabulous, fabulous. So uh, one of the things that drew Houston to the book and wanted to make it into a movie is that uh, the entire book and the movie, with the exception of something that was a reshoot uh, requested by Jack Warner, is entirely from the uh, Spade's point of view. And so uh, throughout the movie, every time we're intro- the audience is just introduced to a character, it's because Spade is introduced to the character. Uh, Javier Bogart is in every scene of the movie except for the murder of his partner. And that's the scene that I was referring to is something that was requested by Jack Warner to be added uh, later on. And that's not in the that's not in the book. You don't. Yeah. You only have him getting the phone call. There's a few instances of of reshoots which we can get taught me, which you know are just interesting, trivial things that we can yeah. talk a little bit about, you know, towards the end of it. But uh, so Houston, you know, we said how he he decided that he you know he wanted to do it. He was going to follow the book. How the script was kind of written. Uh, but Houston, being a first-time director, went through and like meticulously storyboarded the entire film, shot for shot, the way he wanted to shoot it. And he was friends and had worked with the director, William Wyler, who was a, fa- a fantastic Hollywood director, directed so many great films, including, I think, like Ben-Hur and stuff. Uh, and so William Wyler went through the storyboards and then would give Houston suggestions or notes. And if Houston thought that they were you know, applicable, he would... Uh, he would make those notes. So he was using his network of people that he had worked with as a writer uh, to kind of get ready to make this uh, his first his directorial debut. And he shot it 
pretty much largely in sequence from start to end with a lot of rehearsal because there Which was helped the actors all that though they had all that prep time to be able to get a I think he was able to get a soundstage and he was able to do extensive rehearsals with and I would also envision uh, before we leave uh, Peter Lorre's character Cairo that was also based off of uh, somebody we said that before yeah. Hammett met somebody in a money laundering scheme somewhere I forget where it was maybe in Texas or something and he met the proto Joe Cairo character and I think the same thing with Guzman uh, he met the Sydney Green Street character I, somewhere I can too. give you the I can give you want to go if you want to if you want to go there Dion we can go there <laughs> go do it do it so do we're, it, we're saying I kind of hinted at it earlier that uh, Hammett had yeah. had uh, uh, kind of based or was inspired by real people that he had met as a detective for most of these characters for m- m- basically yeah, all of he these worked Hammett worked forgeries, bake swindles, safe burglaries. There was a very notorious story where, like, he had to go find a Ferris wheel. You know, he made $21 a week, which is roughly about $500 in 2017 money when he was a PI doing this stuff. And as Blake's going to go there, do it. <laughs> so Cairo, as Dion implicated, was actually – he was a forger that, uh, that Hammett had picked up in 1920 – Gutman, the Green Street character, uh, the character that Sidney Green Street plays, was uh, based on someone that he had tailed who was suspected of being a German spy. And yeah. he, he, that character, that person kind of inspired that character. And he said, quote, of, of that person that uh, I never shadowed a man who bored me so much. Uh, I don't know how that how, how that translates to the very interesting character that uh, Gutman becomes. Uh, Bridget O'Shaughnessy uh, was based in part on a woman who uh, came into the Pickertons to hire an operative to discharge her housekeeper, whatever that means. I guess fire her, get her out of the house. Um, yeah, and also partially inspired by a person named Peggy O'Toole was Hammett's assistant in an advertising company he worked uh, he worked at after leaving the Pinkertons. That's uh, maybe what I was talking, thinking about with the jewelry. It had something to do with jewelry advertising at the, uh, at the advertising company. Effie, who's, his, who's Sam Spade's secretary, was based, yeah, on some, was, uh, based on someone who asked him to go into the, nar- the narcotic smuggling business with her in San Diego. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, Wilmer, who we were just talking about, the uh, Wilmer Junior character, um, was uh, based on someone that he had picked up in Stockton, California, and uh, sp- the character of Spade it's himself wasn't based on anybody specific, but he always thought of Spade as uh, the I- as like the idealized detective. In the sense that it was someone that most of the private detectives that he worked with would have uh, liked to have been. Yeah, the, the, he says that there was more more stuff happens to the Continental Op or to Sam Spade in the page than it happened to him six months doing the trade. And Hammond evidently was like a six foot tall guy, so they say he was really you know good at you know shadowing people, knowing how to hang back, and doing all that kind of a thing. You know, he learned all the tricks of the trade. So it's it's he gets Hammett gets all this stuff from uh, real life experience, as we said before. And I can imagine there's no uh, bad blood at all. Hammett, I think at this point is kind of riding high. You know, he stopped riding in 34. Um, also, 
since we're talking about Hammond, it's interesting that he did go back to some of his other detective stories that he had done prior shorts for the magazine and took elements of them to make into the, to the, uh, to the, to the Maltese Falcon. There's a story. I have this other huge book that's called the, uh, black lizard, big book, big book of pulps from like 2006 or seven, the best crime stories from pulps, golden age, twenties, thirties and forties. And it has a lot of stories that were thought lost over the years and great examples from very famous writers of other things they did. And there's a section on everybody, you know, um, uh, Stanley Gardner, who did Perry Mason, uh, Earl Stanley Gardner, or, or Charlie Chan. They have Hammett, and there's a story in there called the the Creeping Siamese, and it's a short story that's a whodunit of the Continental Op in there. But it has the idea in it where the, you know the where the 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 captain brings the bundle and dies with the bundle there. That is used in that story, and he takes that and he puts that into the to, to, to the Maltese Falcon. And there's two other stories which. Uh, I ordered the book and it hasn't come yet uh, the, of the big continental op book, but there's other, I for, I don't know. I forget specifically what, but there's two other devices that he uses in the Maltese Falcon that he grabbed from two other con- continental op stories, which, and he makes an amalgam in the Maltese Falcon, which I thought is interesting for people since we're throwing the kitchen sink at him. So, Oh, I'm sorry. My point was <laughs> Houston. I'm sure since Houston wasn't, um, was doing the, you know, was when we was doing prep for the sh- movie, he probably worked in tandem with bringing Hammett in. And Hammett, I'm sure that's another thing. Sam Spade was, uh, or Bogart was, I'm sure, able to hang out with Hammond. Hammett, Hammond, the B3 organ. <laughs> he was hanging out with the Hammond. He was hanging out with Hammond. I'm sure he got, so to refine his character as a PI, he was able to hang out, talk with Dashiell. So I'm sure that helped both of them, Houston and Hammett. Uh, Houston and Bogart to be able to talk to Hammett and have him as you know a reference because he wrote everything, which is I think indispensable nowadays. Yeah, I mean it's yeah. uh, sure, undoubtedly. One of the things that I on this viewing, and maybe as like a younger viewer, I never really even thought about it, is that, and this goes to probably the book itself, is that like in a in a way, and again, I don't. You know, I don't mean this as like a knock on it or whatever, but it just seems way more convoluted than it needs to be. And maybe that's just because things have been dumbed down in recent decades for an audience. But it's just like there's so many working parts to all the characters that ultimately don't affect the story well, in, in a you- way <laughs> at all. You've hit a criticism. That's a criticism of the larger extent of the hard-boiled genre. If you read Red Harvest, uh, that is very convoluted on what's going back and forth from camp to camp of him when he's playing double sides. And uh, Raymond Raymond Chandler was notorious with that because I think if you go watch The Big Sleep, that's why there's a couple versions of The Big Sleep. There's like a director's cut because The Big Sleep is so convoluted at points it doesn't really make sense. And I think someone even called Chandler on that. And he's like, well, you know, it's the journey. You know, it's like it doesn't need – I forget what he says. But it's like that's – there's a lot of they, they do that on purpose because they want to just confuse the hell out of you, which a lot of times I guess goes back to the, you know, you see that in a lot of like the uh, Hockey Perot stories or you know the Agatha Christie where you know, but 
certainly these detective stories are very, very convoluted. And th this is something here when I was little. I was like, wait, wait, who? You know, because you're trying to figure out, because you never meet Floyd Thursby, you know, and you have to try to figure out who killed Archer, his partner. And I mean, we don't have to go through. People should know what the Maltese Falcon's about. I mean, he's hired to do something. His partner does it. Well, that's the, that's the thing. Like in the, in the grand scheme of things, like the, the plot of the movie is very simple. Like there's this item that these all these characters want, and Bogart is gets entangled in this, and you know it's just and then how that how that's resolved and how they get it is basically the plot. But what happens is like there's all these like other things that are happening, and unfortunately, cinematically or dramatically, it become a lot of that just becomes ex expositional dialogue. Uh, because learning about like, you know, it all it all just has to come out, and some of it's you know, uh, I mean, it all works, but some of it is more engaging uh, in the way it comes out than other things, because uh, it is like it's all there. I mean, it's, this isn't an instance where, like, you were in, uh, indicating with like the big sleep, where just things don't make sense. I mean, the things when you really think about them, like. Green Street and, you know, especially I, probably the Mary Astor part, the Bridget O'Shaughnessy is probably the most convoluted because you like she, they, had she, to cut, they had to cut aspects out of that character out. Well, they cut stuff out, but it's also like she's using aliases and she's lying the entire time. So you don't really know what's true and what's not true until the and then kind of like it all kind of has to come out in the end. When Bogart is like drilling her to be like to find out like wants her to admit that she killed Archer, his his partner. Well, she's she's using the name Wonderly. She's using a third name, and then he finally gives her what's your real name? And she says O'Shaughnessy, and it's so convoluted to the point when they think it's the Eric Robinson radio play, the hour long one. They just call her Wonderly in it. They don't even you know they're like we can't keep having this is confusing <laughs> enough you know. So they just her name is Wonderly in that yeah. you know. But you're right. It's just it's just to throw people off, and it's all about the that you just it's like that's the template of this of the Dashiell Hammett specifically genre of the same thing with Red Harvest. There's this crazy thing going on and the detective gets embroiled in it either because he lands in this town that's corrupt. I mean, it's, it's always just, you know, um, Dashiell ends up going, he becomes a big, um, uh, not left, but extreme. Like he becomes like a communist and he gets caught up in the, uh, in the the McCarthy years and blacklisted, which is really sad and all that era of stuff going down. But he starts showing like he hates the corruption and, and that shows in a lot of, you know, this is here. It's, I think this, they talk about Maltese Falcons, kind of a, uh, a, uh, uh what do you call that? Like an, a look at capitalism in a certain way and the evils of capitalism. And, um, Certainly all these characters are, there's a guy who comes into a town, everybody's lying and he's got to freaking figure it out, you know, and that's that here. And it's almost an idea of kind of the character becoming hardened to that world. And yeah. I mean, what do you think? Do you think Sam Spade is really falling for her? Is he telling the truth? Hey, maybe he does love her. I you think, know? Uh, yeah. I mean, unfortunately it's, I think he does, but I think in, the version of the story that we have to judge by, which is one that has to exclude certain things because of censorship, it's kind of unwarranted. 
because uh, it's yeah. like because all of a sudden it's like so you're going really quick. <laughs> there's some well, there's like you you kind of talked about earlier. There's the moment where like he's gonna go kiss her, and then he looks outside and sees Wilmer across the street, and you know, there's not even an inference, but there's like, you know, she's supposed to spend the night there, but because we don't see that and it's not inferred. Later, when they're like talk, calling each other like baby and honey, and you're like, wait, when did this happen? <laughs> yeah, because they cut out the whole next scene of him leaving early with her stayed in bed. So yeah. it's, it's not, you See, know, that's because of the censor. So it's not implied. They yeah. wanted to, the censors wanted them to to leave out as much as of him, the inference of him cheating with, um, with uh, uh, Archer's wife, and even, I think, even the back talk between him and Effie, his secretary. Yeah. Because he's not short up with women. He's tagging his partner's wife. You could tell, which is another thing I love, is that he doesn't really think fondly of his partner. I mean, I think he makes a mention of it, that he says, like, I, we were going to get rid of... We, we, we came into partnership, something happened, and he realized from then on that he didn't really care for the partner, and his eventuality was he was going to try to break off from the partner. And he's banging the partner's wife. He doesn't really give too much about the, the part. In the, in the 1931 movie, which is interesting, the partner knows. Like at the beginning of the movie, uh, Bo, uh, Sam Spade gets a phone call from the wife, and he picks it up, and he's talking. And then Archer walks in, picks the, the, the secretary's thing up and listens, and hears his wife saying all this stuff to Sam, and he knows it. And then he walks in on Sam talking to Wonderly, who's I'm already confusing everybody, who's yeah. Shaughnessy, and then that's when he gets the deal to go, and he, the Archer goes and does it. In the 41 version, none of that happens. So you get the idea that they like each other. I mean, he does seem like a little more of a, you know, he's like, and this is all from the book, too. He's winking at him behind. So I would assume... My reading of the book is that maybe the maybe Archer doesn't know that he's banging um, Sam's banging his wife, you know. So and Sam doesn't seem to be. He's like, oh Jesus! Like it's it's like it's even how he treats her. It's like it's like he got hammered. They had yeah. a brief affair, totally. and now Sam's like, I don't. And that's exactly from the book, and it's even less so. They had to cut a little more out because in the book. You know, she's, you know, uh, did you kill him? Because you told me that it, it was only because of him that, that, you know, or you would, so did you kill him? We'd be together. And he's like, whoa, 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 whoa. He's like, come <laughs> on, baby. He's like, Jesus Christ. You yeah. know, and he's like, you can't keep calling me here. Yeah. You know, like, so I think he's having buyer's remorse for yeah, all he's, that. He's done with you it. You know, which is like, yeah. we can get into like the ending of the book because that's like kind of the tragedy of yeah. this story uh, in, a, in, a, in a weird way, that relationship. But, um, yeah, I mean, I think, unfortunately, like, I think, which is kind of what I was implying earlier in talking about the uh, the book that I read, is like, I feel like there's been this, and this is just an opinion, but I feel like there's been, like, this uh, romanticized view of this movie that is very likely warranted, very likely due to people watching it at an earlier time than this one with different sensibilities, knowing more about the things going on outside the movie, yada, yada, yada. But when you watch it today, like it's, you can see it being like the, the forerunner of what becomes film noir. That's definitely there, but it's certainly not as suggestive not as dark, not 
uh, as brutal in in a way that that the that the that genre, which isn't even really a genre, we can get into the history of that, but um, then it, then that becomes so you're you're kind of left with a movie that is made a few years before movies movies go there so it's like it's kind of standing on its own as something that will be an influence on things but it's slightly... well, they call it as a marker the first film noir it doesn't know at the time it is but that's the first one that leads that genre for the next decade and yeah late, late 50s. i mean it's certainly the first american noir as we think of noir i mean you one could look at a million movies from m in Germany to even uh, Citizen Kane, which comes out that's the same year as Maltese Falcon, is much more of an influence on the visual style that becomes noir than this is. But the idea of like the 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 Sam Spade character, the bit of that femme fatale thing, which becomes more fleshed out with f- the film noir movies in a couple of years. Um, but that's the thing that I was saying about the. Richard O'Shaughnessy character in the first place, which is like, there's like nothing sexual about their relationship in this movie. You know, there's an attraction, clearly. Uh, there's a lot of talk. And her of, outfits are not very overtly yeah, sexual she's all either. Buttoned I was up. looking at, <laughs> yeah, with the flower. I was looking at it now. I was like, that's interesting. She's not, because in the, in the, first movie you could see like the garter and she's fixing the pantyhose and this it's not really yeah you know but maybe that's the point maybe she brings such baggage to it we're just like you're saying not it's she is a sex pot for everybody on screen so she her being buttoned up is yeah you know for that for audiences at that time they're like we don't need to have her hanging out all over the place because she's already hanging out all over the place in in the modern you know zeitgeist of the of the tabloids i mean she's clearly so maybe, She's clearly manipulative, but not in the way that we come to think of noir femme fatale. She's manipulative. No, she's not a barber. She's not Barbara Stanwyckers. Yeah, not, um, like she's you know, not. Yeah. she's not f- using her sexuality as a weapon. She's yeah. more using damsel in distress character. Yeah, I'm the a, victim as a weapon than she is. Yeah. Her, than she is her own sexuality. And Which is that what you see in Mickey Spillane and I, the jury, that's when you get to that, where the woman is using, she's ha- she's having sex with the thing, and she's doing this, she's killing everybody. She's the one, oh, I mean, she pulls the trigger here, but, you know, and that's, I think, at the end of, if I'm not mistaken, I, the jury... Uh, which I think they made with Amanda Sante some years ago, uh, and, or Stacey Keach. The, he just shoots her. You know, he's like, I, I loved you, but <laughs> bang, you know. And I think that's and people didn't like that. People were like, I the jury was trash at the time. You know, people yeah. didn't like that. They thought that was too much. You know, and that, but that became the standard as well with stuff in the in the fifties. Um, uh, there's there's another interesting point I think we should get to, and then if we talk about film noir, and then I guess start to try to wrap up. Um, but what were you finishing about her, um, Bridget and her sexuality and her, her character essentially? I don't ever remember at this point, (laughs) you know, I guess I was just like, I was just talking about like, uh, I guess we were talking about the relationship of Spade and, and O'Shaughnessy and and the way it's portrayed in the movie and whether one can believe, 
uh, whether you know whether I think that he did fall in love with her or not. Um, you know, it's a, it's it's an and I started talking about how things are a bit convoluted about the story, you know, but all of that kind of plays into uh, some of the really interesting things about the Bogart character, like the Spade character. I mean, un, it's like he's if you go with like your your kind of like theory or hypothesis about like he is came back from World War One and uh, he doesn't want, you know, that he doesn't want to be made uh, a fool, a sucker. And, you know, he's been hurt before, all this stuff. It's, uh, it's like almost like he's in love. You could, this is projecting. Uh, he's like in love with the idea of her in a way like the infatuation of a new yeah a and new, like new maybe like the conquest wanting to be the hero and and all that stuff because it all comes out in the end which is like you know when he sits back and has that realization that you were talking about earlier because he has this realization of like she's it's a very li- subtle but it's great yeah but like she's a liar uh and or even Sydney Greenstreet says to her remember she goes to make the coffee and he says, "Watch out for her. You know, yeah, you in with her. Don't trust her. You could be dead." <laughs> you know, but he just he has the realization that this is not going to work out. Yeah, it's yeah. either like he's going to go to prison for her, or he's got to let her go to prison for what she's done. Like he knows too much about her now. Like it's just he's she's he's, asking him. She's like, "Will you please you do it for me?" Don't you love me? And he's like, fuck, what the fuck? But it's like, he just knows, like, he know now he knows what she did, so he can't trust her. Not that he really did through the whole movie, but now that, like, he knows that she's a murderer, like, she, she, he, she's gonna, you know, she's gonna protect herself. So now he knows that he can't and trust her. She killed Floyd Thursby. She, she, he, she was his, that was her Sam Spade up until they got to San Francisco. Yeah. You know? He was a gunman. He was a he was a he was a gambler who went to the Orient, kind of like a la Temple of Doom. Uh, he was a gunman, uh, a bodyguard for for a gambler out there, and then he met her and became infatuated with her. And then, you know, she manipulated him to help her get the Falcon with yeah. Jill Cairo and all that. So it's like but, she comes to San Francisco, and you know, yeah. But there's just all this stuff that comes out in that last scene that is so great. Oh yeah. But part of it is like this realization where he's. Not just that, like, she's trouble, but that, like, this is never going to work. Like, he never, even if she can, they can somehow get away with it, he's never going to be able to trust her. So if he can't trust her, like, what kind of relationship could they ever really have? And so it's just like it all builds to a certain thing. And it's, it's one of the things that, um, is kind of atypical to the film noir movies, which is like the, in the, in the film noir movies that come later, you know, it's the strong, manipulative female character who's evil, maybe homicidal, but she's she's ambitious and she's flaunting her sexuality and she's playing men like they're fiddles and they're falling into her trap. She's strong. And even though the male characters may realize that that they're being played in a way like they don't care, like they're that far in into it. Whereas Bogart's yeah. character... He's Which aware. is where Elijah Cook Jr. plays in, 
in this in the killing he does that he's, yeah he's this he gets completely taken by this girl and she's a, she's really she's playing him like a sap and he knows it and he's a pitiful and, and that becomes the end of it like you're saying that's yeah. like 56 it's like yeah but, so but in the but yeah. in the movie that we have here like spade knows yeah. he knows he, he calls her on her shit like right away he walks in he's like you know, get you left too much money like we knew that you were lying you know which is is this is that your name is this your name what's your real name he knows the whole time that she's that she's full of shit he somehow is able to look past it and, and kind of fall for her a bit, but like he knows about it, and so it it adds like a strength to his character that uh, a lot of the other like-minded characters eventually kind of don't have. Um, and it's like what little white lies she's doing, and he calls her on them, and they get bigger and bigger. Well, that's you, and, know, you know, you know, and, it, and, and yeah, it kind of plays into like really the character of Spade in this movie is like, ultimately, you know, they're all looking for this MacGuffin of this priceless artifact. That is this Falcon statue. And they all, they're all, their motivations are all that, that they're greedy. They're, they, they want to find this thing. They want to make money. And they're all being driven by this desire for, like, you know, wealth and and greed. Spade gets caught up in that a little bit. Uh, but ultimately, he's a guy who's searching for truth in, like, a world of liars. I mean, they're all bullshit. Every other person... Well, any, any- and he can't leave because of the killing of his partner. Now he's invested. He has to figure out what happened and stick with this and play yeah. it out. Well, he's basically and, says yeah. like he's handcuffed he, to the case. Now. Yeah. The only way you're going to talking to like the district attorney, like the only way you're going to let me off of this is if I gift wrap the fucking murderer and give yeah. them to you. So he's the cops think he did. He killed. It's it's all convoluted. Yeah. Yeah. And so he's, he's all wrapped up in it. And so like what, what his motivations are for finding out the truth are, irrelevant really i mean really he's trying to save his own skin but he's also trying to figure out who gave kill his partner so that he doesn't go to jail for it uh but he's also kind of tied in like you can maybe again it's projecting but you can kind of say that like aside from that he just wants to know what's going on like he wants to know like what she's all about probably more than you know, Gutman and, and Cairo that he cares about what they're all about. But he's a guy and fitting that he's a detective, but he's also, he's a guy looking for, you know, trying to find out what's the truth of all this. And the fact that she's, you know, a, 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 a you know, a, a liar, you know, almost, uh, what's the term with the, like, they can't help it. Oh um, yeah, like not a uh, yeah uh, uh, a compulsive or yeah, like, whatever you call it. Because there's yeah, even yeah, yeah. he's even one part towards the end where he's like, "That's quite a yarn." Like, how much of that yarn was true? She's like, "I don't know, some of it, probably yeah, some <laughs> bits." Yeah, <laughs> you know that's uh yeah yeah so that's a that's a good point that it's almost like she can't help everything she's saying. And there's even I wonder if she's even lying about stuff she doesn't need to lie about. But it's also maybe coming from her character she can't trust anybody for whatever reason from a young age so she's not going to trust any because she inhabits a world that she of you can't trust joel cairo you can't trust gutman you can't trust wilmer you can't trust 
maybe you could trust Floyd or the captain Jacoby, but it's like, you know, there's a, it's, it, they're all in that world of that. You see then is then opened up again for Casablanca. And then, then, you know, that, that the, the, the other thing, it's just, it's amazing. Yeah. You're right. It's, it's this whole, um, it's this whole interesting, uh, you know, kind of conflict that he's yeah. got to try to get through. He's mired in. So, um, so yeah, I mean, like I was saying earlier, the, the, the plot is a bit convoluted for maybe what it needs to be, but at the same time, it's one of the things that makes the movie great, <laughs> you know, like it kind of is. That's part of it. Yeah. It's kind of breaking the rules that, you know, we will later learn in screenwriting classes and, you know, keeping things simple and everything has to move towards the motivation and the need of the character and to blah, blah, blah. I mean, it's a lot of like expositional things, but it's adding a depth to the world and to these characters in a way that just wouldn't be there without it. Um, and yeah, it gets confusing, you know, cause you, you are waiting for like the whole time to be like, wait, how, who's like, who's Jacoby and how did he get the thing? <laughs> you know, like the, the the captain that comes in who's been shot. Yeah, from the La Paloma. Why, La and, Paloma. And why doesn't he show? And why did he show up to Spades? I mean, you yeah. have to wait to find Cameo, out. Cameo by uh, Walter Houston, by the way, too, uncredited. Yeah, John's father, yeah. Uh, so it's like it makes yeah. you wait for it, you know, because there is yeah. this moment where. And he's like, not even dressed as like a captain, no. which is, you think, like in the other. In the book, I think they taught he is. He's got like a slicker on, or, you know, he looks more like he just stepped off of a of a freighter or something or a steamer, you know? Yeah. Uh, so. so you're right. It is. That gets a little like, who the hell are these people? And what's, what the, wait, what? You know? And then especially when you're, they're talking about someone you never meet, Floyd Thursby, you know, you're like, wait, who, who is he? And who killed? How did he, did he kill Archer? Are they saying, or no, Archer killed him. And then, oh, then wait, I killed, who killed Floyd then? And, and that's even funny <laughs> with Peter Laurie. He's like, no, he's like, it's, it's two, not three, because I, I, obviously the kid killed. He's yeah, like, okay, yeah. okay, whatever. You know, he's like, there's a lot of funny bits with Peter Lorre, you know, where he does that stuff where it's a little subtlety with all that kind of thing. Um, uh, I do also think that we should mention there is a bit that's taken out of um, the both version, movie versions, uh, a sequence, and it's very important. A lot of people think it's it's kind of like the quintessential thing in Hammett's career. Uh, it's this little parable he gives. There's a, there's a scene in it where he's hanging out with Bridget, and I forget what part it is. It might be while they're waiting for when she shows up at his house you know, that scene, and she's like, oh, you know, and they have some time together. And I, I, it might be actually when Wilmer's outside. And while they're there, um, Sam Spade gives this, gives this parable, uh, gives this little side story about his, something that happened in his career, which I think is one people think is one of the most revealing things about his psyche, his character, as well as something that Dashiell Hammett is very profound in his career. And he talks about this uh, case Sam Spade had called uh, Flintcraft. And what Flintcraft was, it was a case where Sam Spade was, for some reason, and I'm not, I, I can't remember this verbatim or whatever, but it sums up is Sam's put on a case to go find somebody. He finds this guy. And what ends up happening is that he meets this guy named Flintcraft. And Flintcraft was a man who used to, had a wife, had a kids, uh, had a great job, whatever he did. He was going back and forth to work, had the life, had money, everything was paid off. One day, uh, he just disappears. 
and nobody knows what happens to them. So the wife and kids get on because they have enough money or whatever, everything's left fine, and they move on with their lives. Some years later, Sam Spade comes across this guy for whatever reason. I forget if he's looking for him or whatever. He finds Flintcraft, and he says to Flintcraft, like, wait, what happened? And Flintcraft explains to him um, that... He had this great life. He was this normal guy, had a wife, had a kid, had everybody, anything everybody wants. He had a house. Uh, and one morning he's walking to work and they're making a, a building. They're building a, a, a high rise. An I-beam falls off the building and lands like a foot away from him and hits the concrete. And because it's the sidewalk, uh, he shows Sam Spade on his face. There's a scar where a piece of the concrete came up and hit him in the face. And he says in that moment, Flintcraft, that changed everything and it made Flintcraft realize that because of the 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 fickleness of fate that anything could happen to you we have made ourselves built these lives that we've become prisoners in and he becomes so scared that he realizes that uh his life is not what he wants it to be or it's he's doing what he's supposed to be doing that he ends up leaving his wife and kids and he said you know it wasn't anything that he 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 left the, he wasn't leaving them destitute they'd be able to get on with it uh, he loved them just as much as anybody else but not not that he would be le- missing them every day he knew they'd be taken care of and he went moved on changed his life hoboed or not hobo but just did other jobs and then ended up in a couple years then getting a wife having kids and settling down again and then settling back into this unconsciously settling back into the same thing and Sam Spade relays this conversation and I think the idea is it's supposed to be what Sam Spade's problem with life and he says when he's done saying the parable to her he says you know something to like the effect of what do you think about that and Bridget doesn't really listen is not really almost listening and she looks away and it almost also gives Spade a little insight to her character that she's not listening to this this psych, this philosophical thing, or if she even understands him opening up to her, because he's actually telling her a little bit about himself. And people think this is so profound because this is 1930 that Sam Spade or Hammett's actually talking about existentialism and this idea that ends up becoming very big with the film noir movement in the 40s and the idea of people questioning. You know, is this what I should be doing in life? What's the world really about? This huge philosophical thing that translates specifically into with the French and film noir and in movies along with art. And it almost becomes something that people may not be doing consciously, but they get labeled it. And they're saying, oh, this is an example of film noir or this is a grandfathered in. So Hammett's talking about this in 1930 something that will become huge in 10 or 15 years, this movement uh, that ends up not being in either one of the, the this move, this book or the movie, the 31 thing, which is very profound. And I think goes along to what you're saying about the Sam Spade character, that he has that idea and he has these thoughts about that. So the Flint craft parable, it's very interesting. Yeah, that is pretty interesting. Hmm. All right. Then. We're going to cut that think out. About. <laughs> yeah. So, um, as we go moving right along, we have um, you know all these different great plot points. We have our fa- our one of our favorite scenes. I love when you know Peter Lorre is introduced, Joe Cairo, the funniness of them in the room. Stick your hands up. You you know take some of that. He's like, oh look what you did to my to my to my shirt and all all this little stuff. And then you know and then later on when Sam brings, I love the scene that that we use the, the sound bite for our mixtape of when he brings them together. And they start talking in the code. And yeah. Peter's like, who killed him? And he's like, the, the fat man. And he's like, the fat man's here? 
And he's like, yeah, you know, all, and then you, and then they're, they're cutting back and forth and they're cutting to, to Sam Spade watching and listening and digesting what they're saying. Uh, it's great. Great stuff. Yeah. Well, that, that lends uh, an air of history between them and, uh, you know, in very little dialogue, you get a sense of the back of, yeah. of, of a backstory that they share, which creates depth for those two characters. I mean, it's yeah. who, who did kill for You know, it's yeah, it's all. And then that and then when the cops come great like we said Barton McLean and Ward Bond and then they have that joke and they have the thing where he's like oh she tried to kill me and strap me with a pistol so I didn't want to be murdered like all that and then he's <laughs> gonna go home he's like oh, I'm gonna just go now I don't want to <laughs> he's like I don't know what I'm going to talk about it's so funny yeah. in the next morning you know um and I don't think that's I guess that might they 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 economize something, and I felt I thought that that wasn't maybe in it when he showed like Joe them taking Joe Cairo down him and having that conversation, uh, where he's like, ah, you know, the story you gave me all, all night, you know, he needed to go to sleep off because he was getting roughed up or whatever. Uh, that's great, you know, the turns, the Jacoby comes with the with the Falcon. We lo- I love the introduction to to. Uh, to Sydney Green Street because he's not in it until like what an hour in right he shows up Wilmer's like he'll see you now brings him upstairs and he's great I love when they when they then they, they end up uh, knocking him out they make they Mickey fin him yeah you know that's great well, there's just a uh, lot of great you know, dialogue of Green Street um, that is delivered so perfectly by him you know all this stuff about you know he's always like com- he's always commenting on what a great character Spade is and he's, yeah I love he's to talk those to guys I love to talk to a man who loves to talk and uh, yeah, just all this. I like to drink someone who doesn't like to drink because if they know a limit, then they they don't drink too much. They don't know, you know, whatever. It's, it's all great. <laughs> There's just all this very yeah. colorful dialogue that you know comes right out of the book, but delivered by those guys. It's just so priceless. Yeah. So and that's great. And then we lead up to probably, I guess. If there's anything else we can come, we get to the climax with the, and then they all come together, and then we even have that whole part, which is great, the the, the fall guy sequence. You know, they need to figure out a, a fall guy, but um, uh, and even his swindling, you know, him like, you know, how much are you gonna give me? Well, he offered me this, him playing both sides, or then him even acting like he's getting mad with the first meeting with with Green Street. Yeah, he throws the glass, and he's like, and then well, he, that was he leaves, and it's just like it's an act, you know? Yeah. Well, that's what reminded me most of like is full of dollars that idea of like he's just playing everybody i mean he's to to you know to his own to you know whatever his own goals are but he's yeah he's playing a part he's yeah you know and that's even uh implied later and whether it's true or he's just telling her that in the in the climax where she's like she's uh commenting about him being corrupt he's like oh you know all the corruption he's like well that's just something you know Maybe I'm not as corrupt as, as, you know, I let on. And that's just something that that's how I get the good cases because people think and he, he's even whether he's telling the truth there or not, it's all he's a liar, you know, like they're all liars. He's lying. He's lying to them. They're lying to him. They're lying to each other. <laughs> it's yeah. all just dishonesty happening. Yeah, there's an interesting idea with the with the secretary. It's played up in various versions, and the um, I think it is the Satan Met a Lady version, the second movie they did with Betty Davis. Uh, 
the secretary, and that's really cute and really, I was, I really spunky. I really liked her, the actors. But I like the idea that you get this tension, which they, had, I think they, I feel like they end up playing in film noir. Well, that becomes a cliche too, where the guy has a good-looking secretary, and there's an attraction there where you don't know if they're going to get together or not. But even though we have Sam Spades, you know. Uh, having an affair with the with the partner's wife that Effie, his secretary, clearly knows all about, of course. And she sees all the other girls comes in in the book. She's like, "You gotta like this girl. She's gorgeous. You better check her out." Or you know, she's got some great cans. You know, like she says, like I mean, she's not saying stuff like that, but she's saying stuff that's like, you know, she's almost at one point like a guy. Like she knows what Santa Spade likes, but then she keeps herself a little distance. So it's there's a nice, interesting. Uh, uh, connection the relationship there that ends up in itself becoming part of a a an archetype in the genre as we go on you know yeah. effie's relationship with sam spade you know and then we get to the ending where they all they all come together they all open it up and then even more stuff happens where it's like you know, remember she was going to leave and you know and then they, when they get together and then they think they have the bird and him you know how much you're going to give me 10 grand five grand we need a fall guy give him wilmer this is why we need a fall guy you know why do you uh, why do you think the fall guy stuff is in is in there uh i think it's in the book i think it's just to show the it's that it's the rhyming cleverness of of hammett and his prose and and having the deductive logic of you seeing uh how things are done like i said there's the deleted scene of him searching uh uh Bridget O'Shaughnessy's place and you see the methods of, you know, I think he, it's him being the detective detecting, this is what we're going to need to do. And, and it's a little, I think also thumbing your nose at Wilmer, but it's, it's cause then at the end of it also, when he calls the cops, he's still, it's like, you know, he, uh, you know, I, I was thinking, cause I saw how many six versions of this thing I'm thinking like when the cops get there and he just starts handing them guns, can't the cops be like, well, how do, what's the evidence? Is it your word against, Wilmer's that this is Wilmer's gun. You could have shot whoever with it and just blaming Wilmer, you know. So, but they they're like, okay, Sam says it, so that must be you know the law. That must be how it happened, you know, because you know at some point you're like, because you thought he's taking a thousand dollars to be like, I'm going to keep this for myself, but he's like, this was a bribe to show, and he gives a thousand to the cops. So, um, you know, he could have even maybe he was in prison before. I guess he wouldn't have been a cop if he was in prison or a private detective. He doesn't want to go get locked up, but. You know, it's an interesting sequence. I think it's just to show the intelligence of we have to have somebody dependent on because the this we can't just make all this go away. Yeah. You know, what do you think? I mean, I think that's definitely part of it. But to me, as I was watching it, it felt more like a test. Like he wanted to see really where Green Street stood, where the Gutman character stood on all of it. You know, like is will is this guy will this guy just give up this kid? Or, you know, like, I think he's... Test- love. He makes a point of saying a couple times, I love him as uh, uh, anyone would love a son. He says yeah. that a bunch, but then he's like, well, you can always get a new son, but you can't get a new bird, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I feel like it was probably, you know, on a very practical level, what you're saying, which is, like, he's calculated and he's made that he's realizes that, look, no matter what happens, somebody needs to be take the fall for this murder <laughs> or else I'm going to do it. So that's part of my stipulation. Uh but at the same time, like pointing at him, pointing at Wilmer, I feel like he's he's trying to see where everybody stands in it. Like what yeah. are the what are the actual relationships and and how loyal is everybody, you know, what's 
what's the yeah, true, how corrupt can they be? What's the true dishonesty you know, that's happening here? Yeah. Like um, the hypocrisy of it all, knowing that they're gonna, you know, how they're willing to sell each other out at a moment's notice, even the ones that are, you know, that have yeah. so close bonds. Because even because you know, it... like I said, there's even a there's even an inference I got. I might be wrong that they were. I don't, you know, they, there was weird stuff with the three of them, if with 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 being gay and yeah, yeah. you know, if it's a father son relationship or is it something else. But either way, he's still giving them up, you know. Because at the end of the day, like. How much can you really trust a guy that's gonna, you know, be handed over, hand over his own dude? <laughs> you know, like, like, can you really trust that guy to come up with whatever his end of the bargain is in this case? Um, and just, I guess that's maybe more goes more of the theme that these guys are so corrupt. So the bird makes everybody so yeah. you know they'll do anything, you know, to 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 get the means to get the end of this. Nobody can be trusted. Yeah, you know, everybody's hypocritical, you know. Um, but that's yeah. interesting. You're probably right. I mean, that's just a test to just, you know, for those levels to screw Wilmer over to to to, to have a practical way out, and then to see, are they willing? Do they have a limit? And and clearly, none of them do. They're going, <laughs> okay, we'll sell Joe Cairo out, you know. And and, and we learn maybe, and also it could be him testing Bridget out too to see how far Bridget will go along with it all. Yeah, you know, she's perfectly willing as well, you know. Because in the book, it's a little more buyer's remorse. Like I said, he knocks out, they all help knock out Wilmer. And Wilmer's like, you know, passed out. And you have for a while, uh, Joe's like, you know, rubbing his temples and whispering to him. And they're together. So it's like, so Will, uh, Cairo's a little more upset in the book that they're doing it. Because I think they're lovers or it's implied that they're lovers, you know. Yeah. Uh, where, you know, what's his face? It's so much the, Sidney Greenstreet, so much of the, learned man he has so many years under his belt that he realizes he takes everything in stride like i can get another you know he realized you know you have to be you have to lead with your head not with emotion you know and that seems like that what sydney's doing sure everyone else kind of isn't yeah um i don't know anything else you want to get into before we get into some of the more trivial um probably but i can't i can't think of it at the moment I well, we go, you know, in, in reading that book and, and looking at some of the, uh, you know, uh, notes going back and forth, um, some of the thoughts, things that I thought were interesting were like after watching the first couple of days of dailies, Jack Warner messaged uh, Houston and was like Bogart's too relaxed, like he's too nonchalant with all this and he's kind of delivering this, the dialogue too slowly. You have to speed him up. Um which is like you see so much of this quick dialogue happening uh, in a lot of movies of that 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 generation uh, of that era, but in this movie, like a lot of just a lot of fast talking. But apparently, early dailies kind of indicated that you know it wasn't that quick, and so Jack Warner was like, "You have to speed him up," uh, and Houston replies with like, "Well, you have to understand that the first scenes we're doing are." They're not the most exciting, but yeah, I get what you're saying, and we'll and I'll make sure he goes faster. Um, also, he, there was a comment of like Green Street's great, but sometimes I fear that people aren't going to understand what he's saying, so you have to make sure that he pronounce, you know, like he pronounces things, his pronunciation is cl- more clear. So there's a lot of that kind of stuff, which is kind of interesting. But then, well, that reminds me of a Laurie thing where Peter Laurie is. You know, that's something Houston comments on it. Like, they don't really see what he's doing on set. But then they went and saw the dailies, and they realize um, Houston says that uh, 
he sees the subtlety that you don't see that when you're standing a couple feet away that the camera picks up with him being like we said kind of like a little phallic or doing a little thing this or that with his eyes or is very subtle that the camera will pick up because it's very close in on you but you don't see when you're standing there you don't realize okay he says the line next and you hear that a lot i think uh you know in the industry people realize with acting in film that you people will be on set, watch a performance, and then they don't realize till they go back and watch the actual dailies uh, of the camera angle that they see that there's a more nuanced thing there, you know? Yeah. Some of the other yeah. things that I thought were interesting were like after the film was done, some of the reshoots that Jack Warner asked for or additions. Like I, I implied, like I said earlier, like he wanted to show the murder of the Archer character. So they went back and they shot that, even though. It's really not needed, and like you said, it's not in the book. Um, he asked for the prologue at the beginning, the titles that kind of give historical background that basically Green Street delivers his dialogue later. He wanted that. Yeah. Um, after Which suits more of the era, I guess. You know, you have like that at the beginning of the Mummy gives you a little prologue of what's yeah. happening thousands of years ago, and you know, so it's like. That's not in the book, but you're right. That's that lends itself kind of like getting the audience up to speed for the movie. Sure, that was something that that the you know the order of the studio wanted. Um, the opening scene, the first scene with Mary Astor, uh, after a preview, they had a preview, and apparently a lot of people indicated that they didn't know what was going on after that scene. So uh, he uh, Jack Warner requested that they go back and they reshoot her close-ups. And basically, in the book that I read, they go through and they show you what the original scene was, the dialogue, and they show how it was changed. And it basically just makes her speech about her sister and uh, Thursby more clear of like what, why she's there and what you know what she's asking. That reminds me, you're talking about her scandals. I do I am reading that her one of her husbands did die in a plane crash, which was also big tabloid news at the time as well we went, she was having an affair with Barrymore and then her her husband dies in a plane crash at the time um yeah that 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 uh and then there's reminded me of it <laughs> and then there's the ending which uh, some sources say Jack Warner was the one that decided to like not do the ending of the book and end it earlier some say it was Houston that decided it wasn't needed and then he went to Warner and talked about it but ultimately uh there's a scene in the book that's after the scene in the movie and uh and the th- and the other thing is about the ending that we do have is that uh apparently it was Bogart that came up with the line it's what dreams are made of yeah which is a play on a line from the tempest uh so that wasn't written by Hammett or Houston that was something that apparently Bogart came up with and Ward Bond's like, huh? <laughs> and one of the things that I think Warner requested of the ending that we do have is that uh, when the police take uh, Bridget out and they're in the elevator and he and Bogart walks out and looks at her, um, it's, you know, it was uh, to kind of soften that him up as a character or make him maybe a little bit more like, like he's reflecting or he feels bad about what happened. Um, because I think they were afraid that he was going to come off as kind of corrupt as everybody else. So there's just like how, how subtle, how a nice subtle like look uh, could really change 
how a, how the audience could feel about him. So there's just like that kind of stuff, little trivial things. Um, there's a um, other thing where when they were filming, they wanted it to be a close set, and they talk about this in the Peter Lorre bio where some people would come on and be giving you know VIPs would get tours of the sets and stuff, and they didn't want people on, so they had this thing where they would had these little state we all became very close so they have these little jokes worked out so if they saw something happening john houston can yell number four and all of a sudden they could be on set getting ready for a scene and then he'd hear houston uh bogey would hear houston say number four and he would start going into a tirade of how uh cindy green street's a hack and how you'll never act again, and you're stealing the scene, and then Sidney Greenshirt will start yelling at him. So because of that, people would like have to be like, oh, we, we better get you off set because they're arguing, and they'll be able to shuffle the people out. Or there's another scene where if they, or another story number they would do is if they hear people would coming to a set, they would have Peter Lorre, because Peter Lorre had a really dry sense of humor. Like, he was pretty, that was the reason, like, he could deliver with these really innocent eyes, these really killing blows verbally. So... If they heard people were coming to set, they'd have Peter Lorre run into Mary Astor's trailer or makeup room, and then people were walking by. He'd be coming out, zipping his fly up. <laughs> and this is in the Peter uh, in the Lorre bio. They would do this just to freak people out, to get people to talk. You know, uh, it's freaking hilarious. You know, because they, they they talk about that uh, Lorre and Bogey. You know, they ended up becoming friends in. in uh, and going to parties and stuff like that. And in the uh, Laurie biography, they talk about how both Laurie and Bogart really hated like posh and people who were pretentious and stuff like that. And so when they would go to parties and they wouldn't want to, they they smoke so much the two of them. If they're hanging out in the corner and someone would come up to them and they didn't want to talk to them, they'd have something where they would do is they would just start blowing smoke at the person's face. Like they would just chain smoke, blowing smoke at the person. So the person would get so they'd have to walk away if they didn't want to talk to people. And there's another story where like Lori would talk about how like he thought that like when you go to a party, it was so pretentious that you could say anything you wanted to. But if you said it in the tone that was right, people weren't really even paying attention. So there's stories where Lori would go to one of these parties and he'd be next to Bogart and the hostess would be like, hi, how you doing? And he'd be like, oh, I've been terrible. Uh, I caught your husband fucking my maid again. How are you? And she's like, oh, good. Okay. And, you know, she's not even listening. Like, you know, it's, it's just all these funny little freaking things. That people would just be like, you know, you know, that they get on together with and all that. And they became really good friends, you know. It's nice to see that when all these people are, like, hanging out and becoming, like, I think it helps the film more, you know. Well, do you want to talk about the ending of the book? I mean, is it worth No, I mean, it's just, you know, I think it's just a, it's it's just a, another uh, end bit. What do you, is there anything particular you have on it or? You know, I think it's just, uh, the ending that we have kind of shows that. You know, at the end of the day, uh, everything that Spade was doing was to solve the crime and kind of find out the truth. But it's my understanding that the ending of the book is takes place back in Spade's office and he tells Effie, his secretary, about what happened. And she seems kind of disgusted about it. And like she's kind of disgusted with him about like turning an aster, I guess. And then it ends with uh, his partner's wife coming in and that he kind of goes with it, which is like defeat like he's it ends like on a sour on a sour note which is just like you know he's just kind of ex- well yeah it, he's accepting of like this is his 
his lot in life, and he's just like, he's even though he's been trying to get going, rid of this girl the whole time, he's like, all right, whatever. Well, going back to that ent- existential problem of the Flintcraft parable, where the guy jumps out of his life just to calm down again and slip right back into that mode of life. I, at the end of it, the whole book, uh, and I think it's alluded to in the movie, uh, Effie's vouching for Aster. Effie thinks, you know, she F, um, Aster Bridget O'Shaughnessy's even. Um, fooling Effie and that's to the point where at the end of it I think Effie's so upset that she was wrong so you have that ambiguous last scene in the place where he's just telling Effie everything and Effie is the stand-in for the audience and he's just basically you know crossing the T's dot in the I's if anybody didn't miss anything and you know Effie's kind of disgusted with the whole affair and then about you know that 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 happened and then when uh, Miles Archer's wife comes in it's the first time he's actually taking the time to see her so you you know he is after all this now gonna take you know it ends with like the office door shutting and him going into like you know to to have her visit and who knows what's gonna happen maybe he's looking to get some ass himself because he's so upset about this that he's gonna you know you you go you know people go get drunk or go get hammered he's gonna maybe go sleep with her again yeah. and have that momentary relief to get away from everything and then you know go back into the to the cycle. I mean, this was going to, they had the, the adventures of Sam Spade on radio, but this was going to, like you said, there was going to be a sequel. They thought about having a different, you know, uh, having the further, I forget what the thing ended up being the three strangers, um, that, that ended up being the, 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 the sequel script. But then what ends up happening is that since, um, Hammett is blacklisted in, I forget what year, uh, at that time, all the, the, they stopped printing the books, red harvest and, and Maltese Falcon go out of print. They cancel the radio series. The Adventures of Sam Spade gets canceled. So he ends up, you know, getting completely locked out because he gets blacklisted. Those bastards. So, But ultimately, uh, the film itself was an a unexpected hit. It kind of made huge careers of everybody involved. It was Houston's first well, movie. He was a critically critical success. They started to compare him to people like Hitchcock and... And uh, even with just one movie, like we said, uh, Bogart was not a leading man per se before this, but then became one kind of because of the success of this. The sequel that Dion's talking about, from my understanding, wasn't necessarily like he wasn't going to play Sam Spade again, but it was reuniting these people in another story, these these actors in another kind of story to kind of play off the success of this movie. Um, and they had some sort of sequel in mind where it was going to be. I guess because what's his face died, Wilmer kills um, Green Street, which I don't think is that in this movie. No, they don't because yeah, what ends up happening is when the cops come, it ends up being that Wilmer catches them in the alley, and Wilmer pumps uh, the fat man full of lead, kills kills Wilmer. Uh, Wilmer kills him, so he ends up dying, and they get Cairo into custody with uh, Wilmer. And then also another thing which I we, which. I forgot to mention near the ending is there's the scene where he uh, he takes the money. She goes, he tells, Spade tells Bridget, go make us some coffee. You know, go do what a woman does, you know, back then. Go just, you know, make coffee and sandwiches for us. And she's like, okay. So as she leaves, what's his face says, let me hold the money for the 10 grand. And uh, Sydney takes it and he says, there's only nine bills here. In the book and in the other versions, uh, he says, what do you mean there's only nine? He confronts her and he says, as in the movie, where are they? Where is it? She's like, I don't have it. He's like, I don't believe you. I'm going to sort this out. He takes her into the bathroom and he makes her strip. 
He shuts the door and she's like, you don't believe me? He goes, no, I don't believe you. And he's like, strip for me. She's like, but even after what we've he's like, I don't care. You know, uh, if, if either you're going to strip for me now or I'm going to open the door and I'm going to have them do it for me. You know, it's more of this him being pissed that, you know, he's finding the shit out about her. So he makes her strip down and come to find out she didn't have the bill on him. And this is, they cut because of the censors, which yeah. you see happens in the 31 version, they have him do it. You know, so she, and she's like, oh, you know, because it's sexy back then. You can have her half strip or whatever, be in a bathtub. So when he gets back out there, that's when he goes to Gutman and he's like, you have the fucking bill. And he's like, no, I don't. And he's like, well, I, either I'm going to strip, you know, whatever. And he's like, ah, I, I palmed it. Sir. <gasps> you know, it's like, here it yeah, is, yeah. you know. So I, I that's another like, thing that wasn't in it. I kind of like that it's not in the movie, though, to be honest with you, because that it just seem, makes him seem more of an asshole. Uh, it's also exactly. yeah. telling where it's like, it's really the only time, her by saying, like, I don't have it, it's really the only time she tells him the truth before that. Like, everything. And that's interesting, too. Everything else, she's, everything else she's said to him has been a lie, except for that. I don't have it. And, and he believes her. And he, it, but in the book, he, he he doesn't, and he makes her strip. So isn't that interesting that you're right? That's the only thing she tells him that's the truth. And he doesn't believe her. You know, it's like if uh, maybe he's believing everything else she's saying. Yeah. And the one thing she she says that's truthful, he makes her do this humiliating thing, which might might be humiliating for her. She may not care. We don't really know her character, really. You yeah. know, but she strips in front of him. She's like, oh, my God. You know, and he's and she's and that's the time she's telling the truth. And he's like, well, fucking, you know, it's because it's your own fault. You made me do it. <laughs> you know, he's going to say something <laughs> like that. You know, anyway, before we uh, wrap this. The Bogart character, yeah, it's just that that it, this movie becomes so popular because, you know, people who are in World War II starts in 41 and we're in the war years now. Casablanca is so big. And this character that, that becomes the birth of the antihero that you, you could kind of trace it back to, Bogart's character, his evolution in this into Casablanca becomes something that the people coming back from the war see. It's what the public needs, this icon of the era that is this kind of guy that, you know, it, um, that that you know can play both sides and and you know isn't you know he's he's he holds the world in contempt you know it's something that people are starting to feel themselves with the world you know and so they can see themselves vis-a-vis um, um sam spade here and yeah. bogart more that's what becomes he i mean if you look at entertainment uh weekly i think called him the the most famous number one famous hollywood the number one hollywood what is it called they, they said that he's the uh, called him the number one movie star of all time. Well, we Bogart Entertainment Weekly said so. You know, it's because of this becoming these iconic stances. You know, in the trench coat. You know, under the street light, <laughs> like in um, Casablanca. Sure. Uh, before we wrap it up, should since we mentioned film noir so many times, uh, should we just close this baby with a, with a brief? Uh, explanation and ex- and uh, description of what that is and why we brought it up so much. Sure. Yeah, <laughs> we, we teased it because this ends up opening the door to the to that world of film noir, which ends up leading us to where we are today. Yeah. I mean, in some thing. cases, we, you know, had we done another movie, we probably would have opened with this. But since uh, this wasn't, this is kind of the prototype for it, it seemed weird to bring it up ahead of time. But uh, much like we talked about with the Spaghetti Western when we did uh, uh, For a Few Dollars More, where we kind of gave the history of uh, post-World War II 
cinema of like how Hollywood movies then entered Europe after the war, which were previously held during the war years. That's kind of what happens here. Uh, during World War II, the Europe's not getting the uh, American Hollywood export of cinema. So once the war's over and this kind of like wave of movies that had been made during the war hits Europe, it doesn't, you know, when we talked about for a few dollars more, it, it impacts guys like Leone and then even guys like Fulci and the, and the, the Spaghetti Western and the Sword and Sandal movies and uh, all the, and even Giallo to a certain extent all comes out of this. Like, well, Giallo is the next step in this. Yeah. Yeah. But, but it's because they're all influenced by the Hollywood movies that they didn't get to see. Because uh, yeah. they were all people of a certain age, of the, like in their formative years when these American movies hit. So the same thing happens in France, which is uh, kind of the door open, the floodgates open, and all these Hollywood movies that were made. Because, like as Dion indicated, during the studio system, they were churning them out like uh, every week. You know, <laughs> there yeah. was a bunch of movies getting made, and and the French called it the op- occupation years. They had no art, so when 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 the floodgates open. The French are immediately drawn to our now jazz. You have the big bands going small from, uh, you know, these big, 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 big Benny Goodman, these big things to these little, from these yeah. big ensembles to these little groups. The bebop is hitting off. So French is loving our music coming over, the jazz and the stuff. And then they're looking at these movies that they had missed for, what, six or seven years by authors like, you know, um, Hemingway with The Killers, uh, James Kane, uh, who Raymond Chandler adapted his thing for Double Indemnity, Chandler, all this stuff. All this stuff's coming over, and they're suddenly seeing it. So they kind of interpret it and coin the name. They're the ones who kind of come up with this thing. Yes. They, these, French, these young French critics start seeing these movies, and they fall in love with Hitchcock, and they fall in love with all these movies. But there's this certain kind of detective, often not even, you know, detective story like this one, but these, like, dark mysteries uh that come across and they they kind of they start seeing the similarities in all these kinds of movies that were being produced in the mid 40s and we can get into the specifics of those things but i I mentioned this first because they are the ones that coined the phrase film noir which means black film because they notice these traits not only where they're looking at films that where the outlook of the characters is dark. The world of the movie is dark. The way those movies are shot is dark. The endings are usually pretty dark. So they coined this phrase uh, film noir. And so it's interesting because we all refer to these movies as film noir movies, but they weren't... That term didn't exist for those movies while they were made. That term didn't exist until... Post-war. Until after the war. So after these movies were made, it's kind of reflected. War ends 45, yeah. It's kind of it's reflective, and then these a bunch of these critics are the guys that then go on in the fifties and in the sixties they become the, f- the filmmakers themselves, and there's the one there are the the filmmakers of the French New Wave. So those are guys like Truffaut and Godard. Uh, these are they were critics, much like Dario Argento was a film critic before he became a filmmaker. So it's all kind of tied into the same thing, and what they're kind of what they're responding to. Uh, these French film critics and that make them coin this phrase. Like I said, is this certain style of film that comes out that all comes after Maltese Falcon and probably not probably 
but was very much inspired by not just the success of the film, The Maltese Falcon, but the literature of guys like uh, Dashiell Hammett and uh, and uh, Chandler, Ch- and, Richard, yeah, yeah, and all Chandler, and all these guys. So Hemingway. So what we get is our films that, uh, in in the case of film noir, are often they're not their profession. Often isn't detective. Some of them there are, but you know, guys like uh, Fred McMurray's character in Double Indemnity is. He's an investigator, but he's like an insurance investigator. He's not a private detective, or he's not, you know, he works for an insurance yeah. company, and he's, you know, just trying to. He has to investigate because you know the, the well, insurance company needs to pay out something, so they have investigators that go and investigate. But not necessarily with with his character, but you have that where you look at the technology. Of the 30s, I how we're saying before is how you go for 10 years from 1930 to 1940, how streamlining technology is becoming for filmmaking. And then when you go into the the innovations during World War II of the IMO, the Bell and Howell, the camera systems, you get you be able to they they could take the camera and lights and go on locations more. They realize it's everything's a little more portable. You don't have to have huge lights up in rafters and big old cameras on sound stages. So in the 40s, you start getting even though. Uh, you know, uh, this movie's entirely shot almost on on sound stages. You get to be able to have these movies that are a little more realistic. The the characters are a little grittier than we said about the gentleman detectives of the '30s, like the Charlie Chans and the and the very polite, you know, um, uh, 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 Mr. Motos and stuff like that. And you get in these guys who are very more in the street, grittier. And uh, the French see this and they're like, wow, this is freaking amazing. It, it's shot. You know, like you said, how it's shot. It's all it, like it gets to the naked city where you could shoot stuff entirely on location, you know, and, and with half natural lighting. A lot of it, film noir becomes very almost gimmicky lighting. But a lot of that's based out of truth. You know, the German expressionism of the uh, of the 20s and 30s. That yeah. Kind of stuff. But know? also what's interesting about it is like, you know, we look back at these movies now as like these great Hollywood movies. But it was all, if we go through, for instance, if we just go through like the the, 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 the characteristics, the defining characteristics, okay, uh, there's a darker view of life, like we said, that's coming from the hard-boiled detectives, the, the kind of literature that's coming out at that point and, and what's uh, popular. Um, it's a concentration of like human depravity and failure and despair. But when we get to things like the shot dark and moody, um, the thing that we lose sight of now is that these films were all, for the most part, they were all B pictures. I mean, they weren't like the A-list pictures. And so when we get to the way they're shot, some of that is just out of necessity of like schedule, budget. We have to make, and not to mention that we have these filmmakers coming, coming from German expressionism and all that, coming from Germany and bringing like a certain air of this uh, dark shadowy stuff but a lot of that is coming out of just like we need to make it look interesting very quickly so it's okay we'll shoot it through the shutters and that way we get these weird shadows or all that's a lot of that just came out of kind of necessity of budget and uh, time uh things like vo and uh flashbacks that becomes a, a big thing that isn't necessarily that's one of the things that um Maltese Falcon doesn't have, but that becomes a characteristic, you know, uh, 
most people in films today, most filmmakers will avoid VO and flashbacks because they see that as being like poor storytelling. But yet that is something that we cherish in these films. And again, maybe out of necessity, maybe it's just like an easy way to make things make sense to the audience of a exposition. Um, the black widow femme fatale character that that's, we talked about that earlier. That's where these things really come to shine because we have uh, the men for the most part in these movies is are played pretty weak and the women are played powerful. Often they're evil and vindictive and, but they're smart, they're ambitious, they're competitors with the male characters. They're not second. Often they're the ones in control, which is really interesting uh, and kind of very specific to this uh, kind of film at that time and often and obviously uh, influences other things. But the other thing that comes out of necessity is like the suggestive dialogue, which is something we've kind of talked about the whole time with censorship. Um, they can only hint at sex and affairs and homosexuality. And although we get a little bit of that in Maltese Falcon, it becomes much more clever and explicit. And well, you get writers like Raymond Chandler and these guys who are, you know, uh, the Makerwits who are doing these these scripts that are just, you know, they know how to put it in the subtext. Yeah. You know, like, I mean, just like, like you know, it, you know it, it's, a, it's not a genre that or subgenre or however you want a type of film that comes uh, it gets fully developed until the mid 40s where you get a film like Double Indemnity in 1944 as well as Murder My Sweet 1944 but when you yeah. watch Double Indemnity which like Dion said earlier is uh, based on a short story by another writer but the script is written by Chandler you know we have this like exchange of dialogue that's like all this innuendo about like, well, you know, what if I pulled you over for speeding and you know, wrapped me across? Oh, the you know knuckles. that that <laughs> was that was on. We had we had that on the mixtape. Remember that was another opening. We had the conversation before I uh, that tears it, you know. Yeah, uh, yeah. Minute of the moocher. Yeah, that, so that was yeah the big sleep or not the big sleep though uh, is from double indemnity. double indemnity. Yeah, that was yeah. But all yeah, that, so that becomes the yeah all that dialogue that is so beautifully constructed and fun to listen to and all that's coming out of the fact that they couldn't just have them take a roll in the hay you know they couldn't get them in the yeah. sack so they have to talk about it but they can't talk about it you know explicitly they have to be suggestive and so all these kinds of things that we've come to know as film noir I just I find it fascinating because, like I said, one, so much of it is out of necessity because of budget and censorship. Two, the term doesn't even get created until after these movies are already done. Nobody's really making them anymore, and they're creative. And it's and and it's because of so many things with American art. It takes other places to appreciate it before we can appreciate it. Whether it's you know American blues in the sixties. It took the <laughs> it took the it the took British the British people to love it. Whether it was rockabilly and people like Brian Setzer who had to go to England to become a hit before they could come back to America, or Hendrix happened with Hendrix, or the Western or the spaghetti Western. The black audiences like rock and roll, and you had to have the white guys do it to get the rock and roll to yeah, come in. But it took you know? it, it took the Italians to kind of reinvent the Western for Westerns become big again. It took France to took the French to look at this 
and say like, hey, look at this artistry. And they're also the ones that create the auteur, the auteur theory during this time where they're looking at the films of like Hitchcock and Ford and Howard Hawks and saying like, well, there's something to like the filmmakers bringing their own point of view. It's all fascinating stuff and worth going into. Well, that also goes into the idea of the big existentialism conflict comes up to play around this time because they kind of go par and parcel with this and you know uh people also look at it they they point at um the um early version uh, at the beginning of the uh killing which is an Ernest Hemingway short story that they made into two movies the first one of which is uh with um I think it's Burt Lancaster's first movie and did we bring up already we brought up Canon William Conrad, he's one of the hitmen, but in the beginning of the thing, they come into the... I think we watched that in film school, actually, uh, The Killing, or The Killers, and they come into a diner, and they're they're two hitmen trying to find out where Burt Lancaster lives to kill him, and they have this really unsettling conversation with the guy in the diner, the young kid, about the food, and they're calling him Bright Boy, and they're really, like, pushing on him, and it's really, like, scary, and it's one of these kind of ideas where it's 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 the it's the end existentialism this idea that that you see now coming out in all these movies it's an early scene of it there that you end up going on to see even like with sam beckett and freaking waiting for godot and harold pinter and the playwrights of this this why am i here this whole thing and that all comes out as i was saying before in the 40s here with all these movies you know you have these big blockbusters murder my sweet 1944 we said the big sleep in 46 you got lady in the lake which is 46 as well. Detour, which is huge, film noir, uh, which is 46, very low budget, I think, Detour. Yeah, that one's out of the past. Rough. Yeah, Out of the Past, Robert Mitchum and uh, Kurt Russell. Well, not Kurt Russell, Kurt, <laughs> uh, Kurt Douglas. Kurt Russell. Yeah. Kurt Douglas, Naked City, 1948, which begets an amazing TV show in the 50s, which is groundbreaking. Asphalt Jungle, which I think is also John Huston, which is 1950, Crime Wave, uh, and the killing, which are both Sterling Hayden movies, movies with an early Charlie Bronson and Crime Wave, those are great. And then you see Hitchcock grabs it. Hitch, we go from the gentleman detective of the of the of the thirties, forties. We get the hard boiled, and then in the fifties we get the the giallo. We get the Hitchcock grabs that idea, takes the the. Um, the, the detective out and puts the normal everyday man in the problem. And yeah. then that's the fifties. You get, the, you get that. And then that, it goes into the sixties, even then with the spy craze where you have these, you get an international, we'll put a spy like an international man of mystery in, in this role and have a whole, you know, the whole bond movies. Cause Dr. No is almost the film noir. You know, people have called it that. And then this goes even into the seventies. Then you have a revival of, film noir movies and you get these movies like Chinatown uh you get um uh which John Huston uh, is like, in Yeah, John Huston's in. Yeah, that that's for most people if they realize he's in he's an actor in Chinatown, but you have um The Long Goodbye with Elliot Gould which is amazing. You get uh Point Blank that that uh, people will call Dirty Harry. You get all these movies in the 70s that are are really um I feel like there's another big one or two that I cannot remember at the moment uh, that are big in the 70s that, that, that really revive this genre. And this keeps it going now into the 80s. And in the 80s, you get like, you know, there's what, like... Blade uh, Runner. Fu- yeah, I was saying, there's, a few, there's Future Noir. Well, I forget what you call that. There's Future Noir and there's another, like the post-noir period, what they call that. Uh, but it all begets these movies, and it's amazing. It becomes these whole, you know, spins when they marry the genres together with sci-fi and and all that. Because it's just like you know, it's the evolution from the 
the Hitchcock, the Giallo movies, and the, you get the horror movies in the 70s doing it. So, uh, so yeah, film noir goes on until like about the 50s. And it, people say it dies down around The Killing, which, which is 56. And there's another movie, which um, again, now my mind is blanking on what they, they end up saying is the, uh, is the end of the period. Uh, the Godfather as well, people point to as, you know, an example of, of, a, of a resurgence of the film noir. But we get Strangers on a Train, Rafifi, Gun Crazy uh, in the 50s. And then it kind of dies down with, with what happens with the, um, with, uh, the uh, McCarthyism and all the things that's going on because of the blacklisting. A lot of the people writing this stuff get blacklisted because you know a lot of this you know so what ends up happening is the the studios end up kind of putting these down and they end up putting their money into those big epics and then we get into you can get into the westerns of the 50s and go listen to our few dollars more cast or they do the sword and sandal you know movies of the 50s so that's why people say that film noir kind of dies but then it still does have a life in b movie pictures and those keep evolving you have the naked city on television you have like the desperate hours a lot of those movies that Bogart makes and later because then it starts going into different movies you know, <laughs> Rebel, you know like, room for like, way, if you're right? interested yes you know, you know, there's books go, written go. about it you can go yeah and investigate could have been they could do a whole podcast we could change Saturday exactly. sleepovers and just talk about this stuff but it's not it's not it dies in the late 50s and then it's around that time right that you have people like Truffaut that's when they coin it like you said, yeah. it, it, it gets coined near the end of before people, you know, before people realize that it was a fad and people were copying it, 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 it kind of yeah. dies out. Right. And yeah. then it just goes on to something else. And they start making their, like you said, the French start making, oh, that they start making the their version of it, you know, yeah. like breathless. And, um, there's one that it's Unfortunately, the name of it's escaping me. I mean, for, uh, the most famous thing about the movie I'm thinking of, and I'll, I'll look it up later, but uh, is that they had to go what you were saying about jazz is they had uh, Miles Davis come and record a score with like his quartet for this oh, shit. like French okay. noir movie that they made in like the early 60s. Ugh, I just watched it too recently. I can't. It's not Rafifi. It. No, I don't think it's Rafifi. Or what's but, the. Um... But anyway. Yeah. Uh, yeah. My only other. It's tri- very interesting. Yeah. Because only... you don't realize how influential it is. Yeah, my only other trivial thing that I think is worth mentioning is that uh, there were four Falcons made for the movie, four statues. Uh, and, and then William Conrad again. And William Conrad <laughs> was given one because he stepped in as head of production uh, for the studio in the 60s, and later his wife uh, put it in an auction and it got four, around $400,000. But in uh, 2013, one was auctioned off for $4.1 million, which is more than the mo- the Stat, the Falcon in the mo- world of the movie is worth, and uh, but one, in, in but in thirties money, right? Though I mean, but right? in it wouldn't be whatever. But oh. in uh, something, a piece of trivia that you'll appreciate, Dion, is that one of the people that made those statues, prop maker Fred Sexton, oh, yes, <laughs> was uh, alleged an alleged accomplice in the murder of Elizabeth Short. And for all of yes, our the Black Dahlia, our, for all of our <laughs> true crime people, uh, Elizabeth Short was the Black Dahlia. I forgot about that. There's so much we have lying around here. I have that someplace. You're right. He was the guy who designed it, and then uh, that only came out like years later, right? 
uh, uh, that that he's implicated post posthumously, I think. But that's yeah. crazy. Yeah, because you look at the the bird from 1931; it's completely different looking than you know that movie to this this bird. You know, and then we end up. I don't know if we ended up saying what happens at the end. It ends up not being the real one. <laughs> that's the whole. <laughs> that's the whole point. Of, that's the whole. It, that puts film noir and this kind of movies on a head. You work for nothing. It's all for now. You know, so it's just crazy. So it's just, and we, like I said, you just don't realize how influential it is to, to today. I mean, it's all, all this all intersects. It's so crazy. Yeah. As everything does, you know. So, anyway, uh, what do you think? Anything as else? The no. sun's rising. No. Well, I can, I think I can safely say this has been the longest uh, episode we've ever done. Because we're, it, if I'm looking at my estimations, we're hitting close to the four hour mark. You yeah. know. And well, Blake and I, in the middle of this, we took a bathroom break and we hit pause. <laughs> and we went because Blake wanted to go heat up some Elios. I'm like, why are you heating up Elios? And I had to go pee because I've been drinking my Mega Joe Cola. And uh, I said to Blake, when we start recording this again, you know, Blake's like, we got to wrap up. And I'm like, I know, we can't make this long. And then what happened? And then we, we talked went, for an hour. You know, yeah. So, all right. Um, but we it hope is our anniversary our, our, episode. So. Exactly. And we're doing them 12 a, 12 a year. So we'll give, we give a little extra. Uh, but we hope you liked our anniversary episode. It was out of left field, but I think it completely fits into our usual theme. And I think our, our listeners will love it, you know, because, uh, we love it and it's, it's good stuff. Something Um, we should have, something we should have mentioned at the top of this episode, because I, I fear that there's unlikely that we'll have listeners, uh, finish this episode. (laughs) Yeah. Is that, uh, and we'll keep this extremely brief, is that we took the plunge and we now have a Patreon account. So, Oh, uh, I, forgot, I forgot about this. <laughs> You're right. We should have did this at the head. Yeah. So if you uh, would like to help support the show and the buying of books and uh, that we both did for this episode and the renting of movies sometimes and all those things and the upkeep of putting on a website... If you'd like to contribute to the show, you can check out Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers on Patreon. Probably Sat Sleepovers is going to be my guess. Uh, I don't remember how we set it up, but uh, we would appreciate, you know, if you choose and if you are able to give a small donation, we of course appreciate it, even though by no means mandatory for our wonderful listeners out there. You could certainly see by the length of this episode, we like to talk and we like to talk because (laughs) we did a lot of the research to this so you know six books six movies or three movies two radio shows uh it's it's a lot going into this and then sometimes it takes a pause and you know the wife's like i thought you were trying to cut down on your uh on your input into this i'm like yeah you know but it's 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 love it's the anniversary so yeah if you can help out if you want to help out in any way it would be greatly appreciated going towards the the maintenance and the upkeep and the buying of of uh you know stuff that helps us produce these episodes so um yeah please go check us out if you want to and then as usual we're on facebook we're on twitter we're on instagram you know you can find us wherever you're listening to us here please tell a friend let people know what's going on i'd like to thank everybody for again it's anniversary for listening uh amazing thank you for your support you can like us comment email us get in touch with us on the sites please buy our books uh blake you have your stuff. Uh, Score to Death Conversations with, with some of Horror's Greatest Composers is available now. And Score to Death 2 
more conversations with some of Harry's greatest composers uh, will be out in just a few months from the way from when this releases. So this is September of 2020. So uh, certainly by Christmas of 2020, there will be a new book out. And uh, of course, you can check out Score Death the podcast and just uh, check us out on. I'm also on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram uh, at Score to Death, so you can keep abreast of all of the score to death uh information that you require and dion of course has his own book and is finishing a book that is very much in the vein of what we talked about tonight yes so much so that it's embarrassing uh (laughs) i have got a book (laughs) i've got a book that's out now blood in the streets it's available uh, amazon ebook audio book uh and paperback however you want to read it check it out it's a it's a cop thriller like this set in the seventies. So if you like stuff like this, you'll definitely like blood in the streets. Uh, that's available. I have a new one coming out. Probably I'm thinking because of delay with COVID and everything, it's going to be maybe uh, end of winter, 2021, early spring. Uh, that's called Morris PI. Uh, the full name of it at the moment is Morris PI. The men, how the men from ice house number four, because it's very much in the vein of this. It's a 40s private eye detective yarn that takes place in Harlem uh, at the end of World War II in New York City. So if you liked what you heard tonight, you will fucking love <laughs> <laughs> this this book coming out. Uh, you know, if you like film noir, you like this environment, and it's basically I'm pitching it, my elevator pitches, it's an Indiana Jones beach Chinatown. You know, it has the fantastical aspect that we see in The Rocketeer, and stuff like that in Dick Tracy. And it uh, has the stuff we see in Chinatown, this kind of a movie uh, all along the, the, the uh, all across the night movies like that. Uh, Blake read it in its script form many years ago um, at the time. So Loved he's, aware, it. He's, aware, he's well aware of it. And then I, so that'll be out next year. We'll talk more about that when that gets closer. And then I'm in a movie that should be coming out. Uh, probably uh, maybe around Thanksgiving or before, you know uh, when the Christmas season starts. Christmas season starts called Stand on It, which is uh, written, directed, and starring the great John Schneider. People know from uh, Smallville and Dukes of Hazard. He um, loves Smoking the Bandit, and he wanted to do so. It is an homage to Smoking and the Bandit, and I am playing the Jackie Gleason type son in it, Junior. So that should be out soon, and you know, people want to go check the trailer out. It's on YouTube. Stand on it. It is called, meaning that, like you know, you stand on the gas. So uh, check that out. That should be fun. You know, I, I, as Blake knows, it is not hard for me to look, make myself look like an asshole. <laughs> and you know what? I do it well. When you do it, you do it well. So uh, I'm not. If you're gonna that. do it, so you might as well do it well. Do it well. Yes, how do you do? I do it well. So there you are. So check us out. We got another fun one coming up in just a month away because yes. it's Halloween. So we might have some surprises for you. And maybe we're not ruling anything out. Maybe something for our Patreon exclusive for our Patreon list. Uh, uh, oh yes, Patreon patriots, patrons, <laughs> <laughs> the patriots of Patreon. Yes, the 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 compadres. The Contras, yeah. So, yeah, exactly. So we might have some fun stuff coming up because, you know, Halloween, we usually geek out in Halloween. So yes, we're, we're uh, hitting our months now. We might you know, be we, doing we don't something want exclusive to, um, for uh, our beautiful patrons like Jose. God bless you, Jose. <laughs> <laughs> Jose and my mom, my dad. 
Yeah, my dad's writing us a check every month. <laughs> he's, he's been, it. A, no, he's been that, our first first patron. The initial. The OG yeah, patron. Yeah. The old G. There you go. Go to the store. Give us money for soda pop. All Let's. right. Thank you very much. We're hitting the four-hour mark. All right. We Holy love poop. you. Love you, you guys. We'll see you soon. Thank you. Later. Later.